Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spoop Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Hey, before we get started, I just want to let you know, I I got on our Twitter today. I don't know why, like, I don't use fucking Twitter, but I got on there to just just look and see, like, what things look like. I noticed that we had a DM from somebody named Zebub. Zebub? Have you heard of this user? I have no idea who it is. No, I haven't heard of them before. Zebub. Their name was B L (laughs) Zebub. What was their description? I don't know. It just said like hashtag Lord of the Flies. Hashtag. Oh my God. Chaos reigns. It's one of the end level uh, personas that you can get in the persona games. Oh, you mean the dick chariot. Gotcha. <laughs> no, not the dick chariot. Yeah. Uh, BLZ bub. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Satin. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Welcome everyone to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by your movie monster boy, Aaron. Uh, and me, the cowardly Craven co-host, Derek. Yeah, I got a thing about chickens. <laughs> In which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Coming off of The Mist with Evan, we are back doing a movie where it's just me and you. So, yeah, how's it going, Aaron? Going pretty okay. Just to go ahead and date this podcast, since we are banking stuff right now, Happy Mardi Gras. Now that uh, yeah. neither of us fucking live anywhere near, like literally nowhere near New Orleans. Yeah, it's Mardi Gras like right now. Yes. Like today is Mardi today Gras. Today is Mardi Gras. So this. it's yeah. totally appropriate for the movie that yeah, we are discussing, uh, which is Angel Heart from 1987. So yeah, before we get into that discussion, let's, let's talk through some recommendations that you and I might have. I know the one we'll start with is uh, one that we were about to bring up on a prior episode until we both realized, oh shit, we were both kind of already halfway through this, so we might as well stop and finish, and then let's both kind of pick it up and we can discuss it together. Mind you, listeners, this is my recommendation, and then uh, Aaron, you watched it too, Yeah. so we're both going to talk about it, and then you have another separate one after this, but let's, uh, let's get into this one that both of us have been digging into. We are going to talk a little bit about Junji Ito's Maniac, Japanese Tales of the Macabre. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
That is an anime horror anthology based off of some of the short story works of Japanese horror master Junji Ito, who we brought up on this show before. Yeah, It's a 12-episode anime that dropped on Netflix earlier this year in January. It's 12 episodes, about 20 of his shorts. Like Some episodes have two shorts. Some of the episodes are just one short in, in a full episode. I'll, I guess I'll start off. I liked it. Um, I think from what I saw, people were a little underwhelmed, but most people kind of agree that no one has really gotten the magic of his work translated to anime or film or another media. There's still just a little piece missing, but this is the closest we've gotten to a pretty good faithful adaptation. And I agree with that. Some of the shorts are kind of throwaway shorts. Some of the animation on the shorts is very basic. Yeah, I don't watch enough anime to really make that judgment, but like some of them do. It's not they were cutting corners, but it, it just feels like it's just missing that extra little bit of whatever. That's my first major criticism. And, and like you said, I don't watch a ton of anime. The anime that I do watch is theatrical stuff. It is Ghibli movies. I like Akira. I like... Yeah, which the animation, you can't compare that because the animation of that is insane. Exactly. It's it's stuff like Paprika. I like Perfect Blue. You know, I like a lot of the Satoshi Khan stuff. You can't compare the animation. It's a completely different thing because by just the nature of the medium, serialized TV anime is made to be cheap and cut corners. That's kind of the biggest beef I have is so much of what makes Junji Ito's stuff work is his artwork is so fucking hyper detailed and yeah. gross unsettling there's also something about it being in that traditional black and white manga style that's like a very hand-drawn kind of look seeing the stuff in color and color that's really flat and doesn't have a lot of depth or texture to it is kind of weird that's really my biggest complaint is i i feel like it is a netflix show done on the cheap now what's disappointing is there was that Cartoon Network show, right? Wasn't there supposed to be an Adult Swim show? And that looked way closer to his art style. And that's more of what I kind of want, I guess. Yeah. But again, like, I haven't seen enough of his other work and other stuff. Like, I haven't seen the Uzumaki movie, which we will do on our show eventually. But I know it's a bit different than what the manga actually is. But like, again, everyone has been saying that despite that, the show is still pretty close to being relatively faithful. faithful than any other stuff that's out there but it's kind of funny because i've seen that a lot of people who are are big anime and manga fans they always kind of clown on netflix anime for being cheap and for like not being very good frankly but i will say that this is pretty good and it's interesting you brought up the fact that his work is oftentimes really hyper detailed and just straight up gross i'm wondering if they did this on purpose i'm wondering if they chose the stories that they chose on purpose to kind of try and make it a little more accessible for like cash I would bet so. Because like none of these shorts were super gross like some of his work can be. There was definitely some disgusting body horror for sure, but it wasn't nearly as horrific as Junji Ito can really get. So we've criticized it a little bit. Some of these shorts 
absolutely rule. A criticism I heard was like, well, some of them just kind of end in that, like they end suddenly. And that's kind of Junji Ito, though, like, yeah. at least with the short stories. They kind of do that. And so like, if you're not prepared for that, it just ending suddenly. And sometimes they're not being really a, a wrap up. It just kind of is random. Yeah, it can be kind of disappointing or disruptive. But for someone who has read Junji Ito, both of us have read Junji Ito. I dug a lot of these stories. The first episode was fine, but it was kind of funny because it was pretty much what if the Adams family and the gang from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia like mixed into one family? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Like, when you think about it, like, I will say the show favors with giving it a chance because what really caught me was the second story in the second episode, the ice cream bus story. That one was fantastic. But the third episode, which might be my favorite episode in this entire anthology, and it might be my favorite Junji a short story because I've read this one before is the hanging balloons. Yeah, this one was well done. That is such a fucking nightmare. Like, what a creative and nightmare logic weird way to make an apocalypse happen. Yeah. If you're gonna watch this, if you want to just kind of skip ahead to stuff that like we recommend, I, I recommend starting with episode three, the hanging balloons. That one is so horrific and so fucking well done. I really enjoyed Long Hair in the Attic. One of the scariest stories, I think, in this entire anthology for me. The teeth grinding noise in that story, especially when it ends. The screen kind of goes to black and you just hear the teeth grinding almost getting closer. Like, such a good way to end that. I really enjoyed Tombtown. That one was super interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed The Bully. I really enjoyed Alley. I really enjoyed Headless Statue. Headless Statue was another one that kind of freaked me out a little bit. The last episode that had Whispering Woman and Sochi's Beloved Pet were both excellent. Sochi's Beloved Pet was pretty much a comedy that's the one that i I messaged you and i was like bro you're gonna love this last one because not only does it feature this little stinker character Mm -hmm. but then it also features a cat and it's a cat who's also being a little stinker a stinker yeah knowing junji ito's affection towards cats because he's even written manga short stories about his own cats he has this weird fascination with cats and how they can be cute but also unsettling and, and scary and so i feel like this story was very much like him channeling how cats can be horrific This little stinker who's in this last episode, he actually appears in one of those shorts earlier, but he's actually a reoccurring character in a lot of Junji Ito's short stories, Soichi. He's this little kid who just chews on nails, like literally has nails in his mouth all the time. Like how people will have toothpicks hanging out of their mouth. They're just like chewing on habitually. He just has nails hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. This anthology doesn't explain it, but I I think in one of the short stories explains he has anemia and that's why he does that Ah. due to the lack of iron in his body. He's actually a reoccurring antagonist in a ton of Junjito short stories. The thing that's hilarious about him is he actually also is kind of creepy because like he legitimately practices black magic and the black magic actually works. But most of the time, by the end of the story, it blows up in his face and he's the one who gets his shit wrecked. And usually, like, the stories that he's in are both horrific as well as funny. The first story he appears in in this uh, anthology was kind of okay. It was not It was more just, like, Junji Ito's own sense of humor, and it wasn't necessarily a scary story. That's the one where the kid is like, oh, God, he's being so fucking annoying. I can't concentrate on my studies. Yeah. Let me build a weird sensory deprivation room in our house. Yeah, house of leaves, like, door within a door within a door within a door. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so there's all these in-between layers where they, like, built this kid's room essentially goes from a full-size bedroom to, like, literally a three-by-three box with a bed and, like, a desk, and that's it. And he's like, cool, I can finally study in here. And then it's still this fucking stinker kid just in between the layers giggling and fucking making noise. And one of my favorite images, and I sent you this one, Aaron, after finishing the collection from the manga, one of the short stories in, he's like wearing these two candles on his head, yeah. strapped to his own head. He's lit the candles on top, like a crown of candles, and he has the nails in his mouth and he has a hammer above him. I want to read more of the short stories so I can like read more of the stories he's in. So it was kind of interesting to see him appear in two of the shorts here. Yeah, some of these shorts are amazing. Some of them are legitimately terrifying. Like I said, the hair one, the headless statue one had moments that legitimately jump scared me. Yeah. And then again, the hanging balloons is just a straight up nightmare yeah. of an episode. It's crazy. They're all weird. That's the main yeah. thing I appreciate about them is that they are all weird in a way that you can't put your finger on. They are very unsettling. There's just something about them. Like for every story where you're like, okay, I've kind of seen something like this before there's gonna be four where like nowhere in your fucking brain could you have ever like thought of what the fuck is happening in this you know the couple stories that i didn't necessarily like nor did i hate when i first watched them and i kind of want to go back and rewatch them and i watched all this subbed i i watched it all in japanese with english subtitles but i do know that there's a dub for this too but the ones that kind of left me wanting to go back and like rewatch to maybe see if I missed something or if there's more to it was the mold episode. Okay. The library visions episode, especially those two specifically were like, and maybe there is no point to them because even the ones that like ended abruptly and were whatever, like I, I was on board, but those two were kind of just, what was he going for here? Sure. And what kind of nightmare was he setting up? Um, and that's all actually in one episode. I think mold and the library visions were both in the same one. I just really enjoy his take on horror because it's unlike anyone else. Again, Tombtown, like the idea of when someone dies in this town, wherever they die, a tombstone appears. Yeah. Like they turn into a tombstone. The exact spot. Yeah. The exact spot. And even just animals too. So there's all these tombstones of various shapes and sizes on the sidewalk, in the middle of the road, out in the field, in the store, in your house, because the previous owner died there. Just that kid nightmare logic really being turned into an actual fully realized story is amazing to me. And no one does it better than Junji Ito. I would love for this to continue on. Yes, the animation, I feel like, needs work. Yes, some of the stories, maybe they need to choose different variety of stories sometimes, but I fucking loved it overall. But that's because I like Junji Ito so much. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I kind of fall in the same side as you. I wish that Netflix would... And we know at this point, like, it's not the case because, frankly, Netflix is massively cutting from their animation division and they are cutting back on animated projects, which is a shame because nobody else is really doing that. You know, I would like to see them invest a little bit more in the future of this series, get maybe some better artists. I don't know. I don't know how any of that works, but just get a little bit more invested in the series. I think it could be really interesting and special, but they They've got to commit to like trying to make it good instead of just, hey, we looked at an algorithm and it says people like Junji Ito. So let's just do that and let's just do it as on the surface easy as we can. Which, you know, there is a little bit of that to this. That's where yeah. this show is disappointing because you do feel at times like, oh, this is just Netflix saying, hey, we need content. What's popular and that they're not actually 
invested in what this is yeah well it's interesting too because again with it is a little weird with the story choices because tomei is another like really big like uzumaki and tomei are two of his masterworks a lot of people consider it's interesting they chose a random short story from that volume to throw in here and like if you kind of don't know the plot of tomei like yeah really just out of nowhere that this girl is manifesting other versions of herself in her physical body it kind of comes out of nowhere and you're like wait what the fuck so whereas something like that i feel like would benefit from being an actual like side anime like be its own thing turn that entire story into a different show instead of having just a random throwaway short story which granted it's a fun story it's a good story the uh, photographer character is one of my favorite main characters and out of all these shorts i do love at the end where like after all that bullshit happens and there's blood all over her walls everything she's like well time to clean up my room before my parents get home (laughs) it's just like you were literally abducted and like witnessed murder like what the fuck yeah the like weird i don't know if any of that was real or not well i guess i need to clean all this blood and gore off my walls like (laughs) how do you how do you still question this right well and just fyi too like there are some trigger warnings with some of this work junjito doesn't shy away from fucking up kids hanging balloons is all about a suicide like it starts with the suicide you know this is like a whole deeper more complex conversation that we are probably not at all you know equipped to have necessarily but suicide is a big major problem in the country of japan Japan. it is a massive issue socially just within the culture of the country so like that permeates a lot of his work because that is something that is just kind of omnipresent within society there in a way that it's not in most other world cultures so you know if that is something that you're particularly sensitive to then go into this knowing Yo, this is going to be a pretty major aspect of all of these stories. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, like I, I do like that it ends on a pretty comical story, which is still kind of a creepy story, but it ends on the comical story with Soichi and the cat. And of course, by the end, he gets his shit owned. <laughs> and it's very comical how it happens. But yeah, overall, I really enjoyed it. I liked it. I recommend it. And if you're not feeling a story, I think it's fine to skip ahead on these sometimes. And some of them are absolutely worth sitting through and checking out. If you get through the Hanging Balloon episode three and you're still not interested, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, I have nothing else for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's (laughs) easily one of the better ones. And I'll say, like, I was not really feeling the first episode either. So I immediately was kind of like, oh, boy, you know, where is this going? But like we've been saying, by the time that you skip the intro and you skip the, like, extra three minutes worth of back credits these episodes are like literally 20 minutes each so you can pound through this entire series in about four hours yeah it's really not that much of like we say it's a tv show in our minds immediately go to like oh god it's gonna be like a huge investment it's really not no it's not you can blast through this whole show pretty quick i flew through this in in three days i think i finished it yeah but yeah i I, otherwise I, i don't really have much else to say about this even though like it feels like they didn't put too many resources into making this i would still love to see his stuff adapted uh, I would still love to see more anime of his stuff. I would still love to see whatever this Adult Swim show was going to be that yeah. Flying Lotus was supposed to be involved with. I know. Like, what happened to that? Did Netflix, like, buy them out? Like, I don't know. It was supposed to come out year before last. And then they were like, oh, JK, it's coming out next year. And then that came and went, too. You know? I don't know. I don't know what's going on with it. Okay. So, it looks like... 
Uzumaki is still being adapted for Cartoon Network. It's still under the AdultSwim.com website. It says Junji Ito's horror manga classic comes to Toonami in 2023. So according to this, that is still a thing that's happening? I mean, I'm down like a clown for Uzumaki, so... Yeah, it was originally announced all the way back in 2019. It was scheduled to release in October 2022... And again, this looks like it is way more faithful to, like, the style of his artwork as well. Well, and especially if Flying Lotus is involved, like, you know, it's going to be gross. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's all this says. It still just says coming in 2023. So I guess, like, we still have that coming. We'll find out. Well, I, just this morning, literally, like, right before we started recording, finished M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, Knock at the Cabin. Okay. My name's Leonard. It's nice to meet you, Will. Why are you here? I suppose I'm here to make friends with you. And your dad's too. But my heart is broken. Why is it broken? Because of what I have to do today. I'm still processing it. I think I maybe want to watch it one more time. For those who don't know, this is based on a novel that I've brought up on the show very, very early. I mean, this was years ago that I read yeah, this book. Yeah, I remember you, you did. It's called Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. He also wrote Head Full of Ghosts. Which I brought up. Which that is also being adapted. Okay, so I guess for the setup, this is kind of honestly playing to all of Shyamalan's strengths. It is set in an isolated cabin on the lake. A couple and their adopted daughter, and this is a same-sex couple, they are there for the weekend. Jonathan Groff is one of the couple, right? Yes. So it's it's Jonathan yeah. Groff. I love seeing him in stuff. He has been in you know a lot of Broadway stuff. Yeah. Most notably, he was in Spring Awakening and Hamilton, but he was also in Mindhunter, Mindhunter baby. that we've brought up several times, and he is also in The Matrix Resurrections from last year. Which, uh, what's his fuck, doubled down on there not ever being a season three of Mindhunter. Yeah, I, I think Fincher is just done with Netflix, maybe. I think that's what the issue, because he 
he he yeah. did not say there will not be a season three. He said there will not be a season three at Netflix. I think it has more to do with Netflix saying we are not spending what you want for this show. Like it is a period show. So like it's going to be expensive to produce anyway. I think that's where a lot of it boils down. So yeah, it's Jonathan Groff and then Ben Aldridge, who is in Fleabag. I have not seen him in anything yet because I have not watched Fleabag. That's still something that's on our list of shit to watch. It is them and their daughter is played by Kristen Chewy, and this is her first movie. They are at this cabin, and then these four strangers all show up at the cabin. They are played by Dave Batista, obviously from Marvel movies, Blade Runner, Dune, Glass Onion most recently. The WWE. The WWE, <laughs> yes. Uh, wrestling. Nikki Amuka Bird, who's in a lot of Brit TV, Jupiter Ascending, The Laundromat, and Old, The Beach That Makes You Old. <laughs> Rupert Grint from all the Harry Potter stuff, and M. Night Shyamalan's Apple TV show Servant, and Abby Quinn from Little Women, Shithouse, and I'm Thinking of Ending Things. They all show up and basically say the world is about to end. The only way that we can stop it is for one of you to basically offer yourself as a sacrifice and then the other two kill that person. And if you don't kill one of your family members, the world's going to end. And we're here to like make sure that that doesn't happen. And so there's all of this back and forth about... Are y'all just crazy? What is going on? Is any of this real? Is this staged? Is there something else going on? The element of them being a same-sex couple definitely plays into this because they are initially like, oh, y'all are targeting us specifically. You know, y'all are targeting us. You want our daughter. Like, there's all these questions about, like, why they're actually there. Is there some ulterior motive? Are they telling the truth? Are they lying? You know, you have one of the couple who's completely skeptical, like, no way. This is all planned. This is all some pre-laid out bullshit. This is all a trick one way or another. They're fucking with us. But little by little, you know, you start to see things kind of happen where you start to question that, right? That's all I'm going to leave at. At. What I will say about the movie is I th think this is maybe Shyamalan's best movie in years. Interesting. This is the first movie he's in a long time that I've seen that I actually enjoyed because I did not enjoy where he took the unbreakable idea with Split and then Glass. I was just not big on like where he took that series. The Visit is just not for me. Old, The Beach That Makes You Old was like a really laughably bad Twilight Zone episode. I did not enjoy it. I know a lot of people liked Old. It wasn't for me. I have not been big on any of his stuff in a while. This movie, though, I think perfectly plays to all of his strengths historically. It's isolated. It's in this one location. It is a very small, tight cast. The story is very straightforward, simply told. There's not a whole lot of convoluted anything going on. I think why this movie works, though, is... He's a good director. Like, I, I I will always go to the mat for Shyamalan and say, he's a good director. I 
do not think he is the best writer. I agree with you on that. I do think he can direct the hell out of a movie, but his writing sometimes is rough. And that's where I think the problem is because he markets himself as the storyteller. I have all these stories that I want to like lay out for my audience and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, you do better from a technical execution standpoint, but you need other people writing your shit. I'll even give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he has good grand ideas, but the execution of the details, I think, is where he kind of loses it. Yeah, I mean, he needs either a co-writer or he needs to find material, like in this case, he needs to find material that works for the stories that he wants to tell, that has themes that kind of work for him, and he needs to work with that stuff. So I, I think a lot of the reason why this works is the original screenplay was written by Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman. They're the ones that adapted Tremblay's book, and the script sat on the blacklist for the last couple of years. Shyamalan like found it, took a crack kind of reworking some things, which I'll get to in a second. But I think that's part of why this works is because this is not one of his original stories. This is wholly, you know, this other pre-existing thing written by somebody else. I was about to say that, like the fact that he can base this off of a Paul Tremblay novel, I think sounds like it really helps the movie. It does. The other thing I'll say is this movie looks so much better than his last several. This was shot by Yaron Blaschke, who is known for working with Robert Eggers on all of his stuff. So this is the guy who shot The Witch and The Lighthouse. It looks gorgeous. It looks excellent. I don't know. Like, there's just something about the mood and the tonality that works for this story. It's something that his movies have been missing for the last couple of years, I feel. And this cast is excellent. That's the other big thing is I think this is maybe the best cast he has had in years. He's had movies in the last couple of years with good people. I don't always feel like they are well cast for the characters that they are playing. I enjoy a lot of the people that he's had in these other movies. I don't enjoy them in those roles necessarily. But this cast is excellent. Dave Bautista is so fucking interesting in this role. I mean, honestly, the trailers really helped to make him the most captivating in this entire movie. And just the his size, like the hulking size of his character in it, and then just the way he acts in the trailers, just that's what makes me draw on to this movie. And it's super fucking interesting, too, because not once does that actually play into anything. His actual physical size and presence... And you would assume him being like a bigger threat because of that. That never really factors in. The character is super interesting. I think he plays it spectacularly. Frankly, Ben Aldridge is really good in it as well. And I've not really seen him in, like I said, anything. But yeah, I thought overall this cast was really solid. Where I have problems, and this is where I'm completely 50-50 split on like whether or not this movie actually works for me. I have read the book. The book has such a gut punch ending. Yeah, it's Paul Tremblay. So. And insanely, <laughs> I have heard people who have read this book where they got to a turning point in the story and they were like, no, I couldn't handle it. I put the book down. I didn't finish it. I couldn't handle like what was happening from that point on. The ending is such a punch in the fucking nuts. And this movie completely fucking swerves. And I don't know how I feel about that. It's interesting you say this because that's where I've seen most of the reaction of this movie is either people loving or hating it. All hinges on the change that they made with the ending. And I could see why. Because frankly, the ending of the book is fucking 
devastating, but in a very cathartic way. It's a lot of the reason why I resonate, and I think a lot of people our age and generation especially do, with, let's say, Ari Aster stuff. Uh, let's go back to Robert Eggers. There's something about a doomed romanticism that is appealing and, again, feels cathartic. This movie, though, completely opts to, like, swerve that entire notion and frankly, I think for the people who have not read the book, they're going to be fine with this ending. If you've not read this book, I think this is going to be a completely like, oh, yeah, no, that makes total sense. Fine with it. Ending works. Yeah. But for the people who have read the book, it's going to feel like kind of a weird betrayal. You know, this movie just recently came out. It came to VOD very quick, which is how I watched it. It literally just showed up on Amazon like today. I had some fucking online credits. It's like, yeah, fuck it. Let me rent it. You know, I, I'm very curious to see what other people's thoughts are that have read the book. I haven't really started digging in on this yet, because like I said, I literally finished it right before we started recording. But as my immediate knee-jerk reaction, that's kind of where I am now. I think this is his best fucking movie in years, and I am so fucking disappointed that it completely sidesteps the ending for something different. Because the story in yeah. and of itself is such a good fucking setup and premise, and it plays perfectly to all of his strengths as a filmmaker, and I think he's got great people that he's working with on this one. It just doesn't fucking have the same impact that I feel like it should, based on where the book goes, and that's what makes the book so fucking memorable. I did see that Tremblay sign off on this ending though so it's interesting either way i haven't read the book but i've, I've read the plot synopsis for it after reading a head full of ghosts why'd you do that i <laughs> after reading a head full of ghosts i was like i need a break from tremblay because like sure. he's such okay. a good writer but it was just like i don't know if i'll ever read this book so i'm curious to see what it's about wind up reading through the synopsis and i read through the synopsis of this movie and i mean i'd have to watch it and read the book to really get a full picture but i i don't really know how i feel about the change myself and here's the weird thing and you can edit around this uh, i don't know if you want to include this i don't know if i would trust Shyamalan to actually do the book ending justice so like maybe the fact that he did change it fits more into his bag i guess so two things i'll say on that one his movies generally always end on some note of hope yeah, That is a thing that is like a theme of all of his movies is we have found this last spark of hope for humanity or for this character or for this situation or whatever. Very few of his movies leave you completely hanging. The other thing I'll say is this, and maybe this is just me being kind of a dick and assumptive. Dude admitted to like not watching a fucking minute of Avatar The Last Airbender. After he made that movie, and it was such a shitty adaptation of that story, he was just like, yeah, no, my kids basically gave me a TLDR, and... I like read a synopsis on the internet. Good enough. So stupid. <laughs> I would not put it past him to have basically just read this script and been like, oh yeah, no, I like this. I can see where I could make a few changes, but I like where this is. And then he never read the book. I could see that as a possibility. I don't want to like yeah. be that assumptive and just say like, I know that's what happened. I have a strong feeling that's possibly what happened. And like anytime he's brought up, especially with us the thing i always go back to is i am fascinated to see how cinema history will look back on Shyamalan 
will it look back on him being underappreciated? Because like in real time, people are so divided on him. Critics seem to fucking hate him in general. People kind of always have been divided on him. That's the funny thing is after The Sixth Sense, which everybody kind of agreed was this modern masterpiece. Literally everything he put out from there has been divisive. That's been 20 plus years now. Which is crazy because at the time Unbreakable, I remember critically it got kind of panned, I think. It wasn't horrible, but it got middling reviews. There were a lot of people who were like, this wasn't as good. This wasn't as good as The Sixth Sense. Follow-up wasn't as good, yeah. But in retrospect, and I'm one of these people, I actually like Unbreakable more than The Sixth Sense. I think it's a better movie. I love Unbreakable. Unbreakable is like, I think his best movie, period. And honestly, like, I like Signs, if I'm being honest. The Village is okay. Here's where I'll be the fucking weirdo. Signs, I've never been a huge fan of. It's especially sticky now that, oh, it's a Mel Gibson movie, right? Yeah, well. (laughs) But I'm that weirdo that has always had a soft spot for The Village. I have too. And I know that that movie is like really not well liked by most. And initially, I fucking hated the twist in that movie. But in retrospect, I've I've come to like that movie more and more as it's aged. Sure. And he, he has like such a weird relationship with religion as well yeah. throughout his movies, which I, I'm assuming uh, with the material that is in Knock at the Cabin. I think it reflects some of that a little bit, right? Yeah. You know, I think that's always been a function of, you know, his family wanted him to be a doctor. He started going to medical school or started working on a degree in psychology. I can't remember which. I want to say it was psychology. And he quit he dropped out to like make movies because that's what he really wanted to do and so yeah he's always had this thing of i am a man of science and reason and logic but i do have this deep personal spirituality and him kind of reckoning those two things has been the basis for most of his movies which the idea of that i am on board for because i feel like that's how i am sure but the way he executes it doesn't always work not kind of almost contradicts himself in the way he executes that in my opinion because i i mean i've seen people even like say he's basically just a christian filmmaker Like, he makes Christian movies on the low-key. And it's weird you say that, because I remember when he was first hitting the scene, that's right around the time that I was really kind of falling out with going to church. But I remember a lot of people being like, oh yeah, no, Signs is like totally this movie about spirituality and Christianity and finding your faith and blah, blah, blah. And I remember a lot of people at the church that we went to were big on that movie for that reason. And same with Unbreakable. You know, they they were seeing these strains of things that kind of lined with their beliefs. And so they were kind of sticking to that as the, oh, well, I can overlook all this other shit that's not Christian in air quotes that's honestly the weakest parts of science to me the best stuff is is actually the horror itself the suspense and horror i think in science is wonderful but as far as the religious angle i yeah. kind of roll my eyes at that like you said it's it's execution and that's the stuff that yeah. i don't think he pulls off well so i pulled this up and granted this is just on wikipedia for knock at the cabin while another director was briefly attached m night Shyamala read the original screenplay and grew interested in producing Shyamalan later rewrote the script and came on board to direct the project as part of a two-film partnership between Universal Pictures and his production banner, Blinding Edge Pictures. Old was the first film in that deal, with Knock at the Cabin being the second. The first draft was halfway completed by July 2021. The title was revealed in October. 
Shyamalan said that the script was the fastest he had ever written in his career. No mention that he read the book, and you were absolutely right. He rewrote the script. Like, so. well, I, I knew he rewrote the script. I just had a hunch that he had absolutely not bothered to crack the book open. Which, there's some weird shit, too, with Paul Tremblay. Like, you said... I haven't read anywhere that Paul Tremblay signed off on any of this necessarily. I thought I, I'd read that somewhere that Paul Tremblay was okay with the ending. I'm not sure. I haven't. Now, that's not to say that's not the case. But what I find weird is all the early marketing was completely trying to like not mention the fact that it was based on this book. I remember people saying at the time, like a couple months ago, like, yo, is this Cabin at the End of the World? And people being like, no, it's not, it's not, it's not. Shyamalan being like, no, it's not. And it turns out, no, it totally is. But in a lot of the marketing now, it just says based on the Paul Tremblay book. It doesn't say based on the cabin at the end of the world. You know, it doesn't even like give the name of the book. I don't know what's going on with that. You know, I haven't had time to like dig into it and figure out like what's actually going on, but I'm curious to see like, was there some weird marketing bullshit to like keep maybe the premise a little bit under wraps? Because if you say like cabin at the end of the world, I mean, that kind of signifies a little bit of what this is about to be about, right? So I looked up some stuff and Paul Tremblay does actually prefer his ending to Shyamalan's. However, he has no desire to ever write a sequel to cabin at the end of the world. He says there's no reason. Yeah, how could that you? The book stands yeah. alone. But he said that the way that the movie ends, he would actually like to see a sequel and follow like the characters that are still alive in the movie versus the book. So it's interesting. Like he had mixed feelings. It seems like. Well, yeah, I, I think I need maybe a little bit more time with this, and uh, I'm curious to kind of see other people's thoughts. I'm curious to talk to both Kelly and Lauren that have been on our show and see what they think because they are both fans of Shyamalan to varying degrees. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of curious to see where they fall with this. Cool. Well, I guess that's that. I mean, anytime we bring up a Shyamalan movie, we do have to kind of talk about it a bit because, you know, say what you will about the man. He's a fascinating filmmaker. But I, I do think that uh, we can finally move on to our topic at hand. So, yeah, let's get into it. This week, we are discussing 1987's neo-noir psychological horror film, question mark, Angel Heart. Uh, which is an adaptation of William, and I'm going to probably mispronounce this guy's last name. Hortzberg. William Hortzberg's 1978 novel, Falling Angel. film was written and directed by Alan Parker. Here's a little taste of Angel Heart. My interest in Johnny is only in finding out if he's alive or if he's dead. You want me to check it out? Check it out. Where are you? I'm just a guy who was paid to snoop around. I'm going to ask you again. Where is he? I don't know. Harry Angel has been hired to solve more than a mystery. He's dead, Mr. Angel. And if he isn't, he is to me. Are you afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid. To find more than a killer. Don't go around murdering people, all right, Mr. Angel? The Prince of Darkness protects the powerful. You expect me to swallow that? And it may cost him more than his life. Some religions think that the egg is the symbol of the soul. Did you know that? All I know is Johnny's running around bumping off everyone he used to know. 
And more and more, it's me who's on the line for it. Johnny's favorite was as close to true evil as she ever wanted to come. There's death everywhere these days. You killed them. You're trying to pin it on me. The flesh is weak. Only the soul is immortal. Did you kill him? You gotta burn for this angel. You gotta burn for this angel. In hell, in hell, in hell. Every angel has been hired to search for the truth and pray he doesn't find it. Angel Heart. Cool. So, uh, this is my first time watching it, Aaron. Initial thoughts right off the bat, and it, I, I kind of have to go back to when. So, we, Aaron and I recently appeared on the Bruce Campbell podcast, and we discussed Sundown, the Vampire and Retreat with those guys. Nate and Tyler, please go check out their podcast. It's hilarious. They're great. Please check out our episode that we were on on uh, Sundown, the Vampire and Retreat. One of the things we talked about in that episode with Sundown was how there was so much going on in that movie, and it was kind of a fucking mess. There was never a focal character that we were following the whole time. It wanted to be a Western. It wanted to be a horror movie. It wanted to be this, it wanted to be that. Angel Heart does the same thing. There's a lot of fucking shit happening in this movie. Sure. It's a noir film. There's a good portion of the noir in 1950s New York. The second half of the film is all New Orleans. This film is dealing with mysticism and voodoo and racial tension and problematic relationships, identity, the nature of the soul, human soul. But this movie actually succeeds in juggling all these themes and all these different aspects to it. It feels both like a noir film and then by the last 30 minutes of the movie, it is a straight up fucking mindfuck horror movie. You have human sacrifice. You have people's hearts getting cut out. It juggles all this stuff. But the reason why I think it works is because we are fully seeing it through one character, the main character, Mickey Rourke's character. I I thought that was fascinating to watch this movie so soon after seeing Sundown and seeing a movie that can tackle so much. And granted, this movie has stuff that hasn't aged well. I will say it deals with uh, a lot of stuff that's going to make people uncomfortable. It weirdly kind of almost becomes like a transgressive, a little bit exploitative by the end of the movie, which is not at all what you're prepared for in the first half of the movie because the first half feels so much like a a neo-noir film. Even the character's dialogue and the way he's acting as this private detective and everything. I kind of dug this movie. I I thought it was interesting that it could handle so many plot points and so many changes and so many themes and still be pretty straightforward and have a crazy ending and be pretty horrific, all things considered. This is not a light horror movie by the end of the movie. And normally I would gripe about a movie this long. This movie almost clocks at two hours. But I think this movie actually does benefit from its length because it takes the time to set all this up and tell the story. And one of the things you need in a noir film is a mystery. And there is a mystery throughout this entire movie. And there's a point where you're you're still finding more questions than answers, which I think the best noir detective stories do that for a good portion of the film and the storyline. 
and we talked about this off air, Aaron, but I realized watching through this movie, I actually have not seen much of Mickey Rourke, at least in his heyday. You mentioned that Heather was the same way yeah. when y'all watched it. I realized I have only seen Mickey Rourke old as fuck eating gravel and rocks type of Mickey Rourke and not young Hollywood stud Mickey Rourke. Definitely for people our age, especially. I mean, you know, he had that comeback a couple of years ago where he was in Sin City. I say a couple of years ago, I mean, that was when we were in high school. That was yeah. literally the first rated R movie that I legally was 17, bought a ticket, myself went and saw. That movie, Iron Man 2, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Domino, The Wrestler, The Expendables. And all, by the time all that stuff has happened, he had turned into basically Tom Waits. Yeah. So that's kind of the thing for everybody our age, that's the Mickey Rourke that we largely know. The Mickey Rourke who now looks like a mountain lion and a catcher's mitt had a fucking baby (laughs) but like dude was one of the fucking sexiest men in hollywood he was one of the hot young up-and-coming dudes in the 80s and early 90s he was in a ton of those sexy thrillers like fucking nine and a half weeks and shit like that but he was like a legitimately interesting rough around the edges kind of actors actor at the time and he is a fascinating guy in general because, like, I mean, he had a professional boxing career that people don't realize. Yeah. He was pretty successful. He mostly won all his bouts. He, he never lost about. He had draws, but of the six or seven bouts he was in, he won most of them. Yeah. So, I mean, that is an interesting angle for this, certainly. Robert De Niro, coming into this movie, obviously, was already a major, major star. And this was like an interesting little sidestep for him. It was. And then this is really the only movie that Lisa Bonet is known for at this point. I mean, she obviously had a pretty large TV career, and we'll get into some of that controversy later. But this is the main thing she's known for. I mean, for people, again, our age, we all fucking know Zoe Kravitz at this point. This is her mother, obviously. You know, and and I guess fucking Jason Momoa, you know, they've been together for the last 14 years. I think they're now separated, but she doesn't necessarily have the pop culture prominence now that she did at the time. So, like, this movie is interesting from that standpoint that essentially two of the three leads and De Niro is not really even a lead in this. He's just a lead by the fact that he's the biggest star in the movie. He's almost like a, a special appearance kind of. Yeah. You know, neither of those people exist now in the way that they did at the time. So a lot of the significance of this movie from that standpoint kind of evaporated, you know, for people that are our age going into this movie now. So I'm, I'm curious to like hear what some people's thoughts are that are kind of closer to our age who don't necessarily have the context of that going into this movie when they watch it you know i do think a lot of people won't realize the type of mickey rourke there was at the time yeah like me like heather the other thing too that i noticed with this movie and i thought was impressive and we also talked about this a little bit off air this movie felt ahead of its time and just the way it looked and was shot it felt like a 90s movie and this came out in 1987 it is so well shot do you know what i mean like it, it just it didn't feel like an 80s movie to me it felt more 
more fresh. In that it doesn't feel camp. Well, no, not even not even the camp. I just mean like literally the way it looks. It looked like it was newer than 1987. Sure. You know, I think some of that is Michael Saracen is actually like a pretty solid DP. I think some of it is the actual, again, going back to what we were talking about with Netflix, the studio was actually committed to, hey, we want you to shoot on location all over fucking New York, all over fucking New Orleans, real locations, tons of locations. Which helps. And we're actually going to set dress the fuck out of them. There is a tangibility to this movie that grounds it in a way that, you know, you don't always feel where things just feel like this is a set. This is a stagey set. There is a slight inauthenticity to it. But to your point too, or or to my point rather, for this type of movie during this time, there is no camp. And a lot of noir-style movies and a lot of neo-noirs at this time really leaned into the camp. And this movie does not have any of that. I would even argue that I think my favorite noir film is L.A. Confidential. And L.A. Confidential was a 1997 movie. And that, I would argue, has even more camp than this movie does. Sure. Also has Kevin Spacey, which oofa-doofa. Yeah. uh... That movie definitely leans into, like, there's voiceover, you know, there's more of the, like, yeah, see, I don't know. There is a pulpiness, I think, to something like L.A. Confidential that this movie does not have. This movie is dealing with a lot of gritty, grimy, especially horror-ish stuff. It just doesn't feel pulp in the same way the pulp that's in this movie and the noir that's injected in this movie all is coming out of mickey rourke's performance i mean some of it maybe is from the settings but the whole world isn't dripping in pulp noir like in something like la confidential the person that is the noir pulp character is mickey rourke's character himself which actually works really well. I love that he kept bringing up, he's like, I, I'm not into any of this shit up from Brooklyn. <laughs> like, yeah, because yeah, I mean, aside from the time period, this could be a modern story. And so a lot of the stylistic noir stuff if it got thrown out the window, like the story itself would still work yeah, and it would still work in and of itself without having a lot of those tropes, I think. And Mickey Rourke deciding to be like this almost out of place pulp noir detective, it could fail easily, but he makes it work so well in this movie. And uh, that's what was like one of the most impressive things to me was that I never thought he was chewing up the scenery too much. Yeah. And as far as being that type of detective, and I actually dug the idea that he was so out of place in certain parts of this movie. And again, just the other thing that's super impressive to me is not only did they actually shoot on location, but they made it a period piece too with it being in the 50s and they made it work so well. And it, it was fun because you and I are both so familiar with New Orleans. I grew up there and you lived like an hour, hour and a half away from there and went all the time to New Orleans. I recognize some of the locations he was in. Yeah, totally. I've been to some of the places that he's been to in here, yeah. And like there's so many movies and granted this movie has a little bit of it maybe but it it always makes you laugh when movies are going to quote unquote New Orleans and like it's not at all what New Orleans actually is. Whereas with this movie it felt like okay they actually were on location because I recognize this spot. Granted, I don't know even in 1950s if this was Algiers, but, you know, I can actually suspension of disbelief just to the fact that all the French Quarter and city shots were actually New Orleans. Yeah. The other thing, too, and I guess 
If you haven't watched this movie, we can probably both say that we both enjoyed this movie. We both would recommend you check out this movie. It is readily available. They just put it out on 4K this past year, so you can like buy a very pristine version of it. It's available on streaming. It's cheap to rent on YouTube and iTunes. Like it's only three bucks to rent. Not bad. Before we like go into spoilers, which granted, I saw like the quote unquote twists coming a thousand miles away. That's what I was gonna (laughs) start with as far as things that were actually impressed with that held up. And that's kind of the framework I was getting at. I just wanted to like lay the groundwork of, okay, we're about to spoil the fuck out of that. Before we do that, like just kind of so you know what you're getting into, is this movie scary? Yes and no. And what I mean by that is there are these weird visions that kind of happen throughout and kind of these scenes that almost don't make sense and are like nightmares that are thrown in here. There's one scene and I'll bring it up with you, Aaron, that I still don't really know the context of. I'll I'll bring it up once we're actually talking about spoilers. But this movie, it takes place in the 1950s. It goes from New York to New Orleans. Racial tension is all over this movie. The idea of separation between white people and people of color is very much prevalent. One character, one of the New Orleans detectives, is super racist. Drops the N-word a few times. On top of that, you are dealing with portrayals of voodooism and maybe not necessarily like in the best well-aged way. I have some thoughts on that that we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get into that. This movie does feel at points it is starting to get dangerous and dealing with some controversial topics. There are themes of incest in this movie and depictions of it that are kind of in the context of the greater plot. But we should probably bring that up up top. Uh, There's depictions of animal cruelty with sacrifice and all that. And then like there's a whole religious angle to this movie that is where a lot of the horror kind of lives and breathes in. There's not really jump scares. I mean, there, there are flashes of like dead bodies and stuff like that are the closest thing to jump scares. But it's more like demonic supernatural horror that is kind of done in a very psychological images and dread watching a nightmare kind of moment sure. that might feel uncomfortable and then again yeah it gets a little transgressive by like the end of the movie yeah i mean ultimately i would say if we're trying to determine how should newcomers approach this and people who are not into horror the movie is more disturbing than it is scary i guess yeah i mean the last 30 minutes are pretty fucking disturbing <laughs> yeah especially by the end kind of also and this really dumbs it down just a, a easy way to explain it for the first hour and 20 minutes hour in 50 minutes you're watching a dark psychological noir movie and then like the last 20 to 30 minutes is a straight up psychological horror movie granted that takes nothing away from the movie because the movie is fascinating from the start and it's horrific from the start when the payoffs start happening with the story that's when like the horror really comes through and you see how this movie set everything up which granted I think movie does telegraph some of the reveals and like if you hire any kind of person who's consumed any pop culture I think you can at least guess one or two of the twists by the end of the movie. Especially if you're familiar with noir tropes in general yeah, there's some stuff that's going to be familiar enough to you that you'll figure out what's going on yeah but yeah so i figured let's get all that out of the way let's talk about how scary is the themes trigger warnings etc before we actually dive into the story now let's go ahead into the story here and like let's let's start openly talking about it so to circle back around to what we were talking about before as far as things we enjoyed about this movie and things that we think work about this movie I like that right off the bat, Lewis Cipher? <laughs> yeah, that's where I was like, are you kidding me? Right? Heather also was just like, are you fucking serious? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and it'd be one thing if they just stopped there, right? That's where I'm going with this is, yeah. I think it's interesting that the movie 
kind of catches you off guard with that first immediate obvious giveaway because then you're not necessarily seeing some of the twists that do come later in the story. As an audience member, you think you might have already cracked the entire fucking case from the beginning. You're thinking in your head, oh, I've already figured out what the twist is. And you have. You figured out what one of the twists is. But this movie also has two or three other twists by the end that kind of compound on themselves and build on themselves in a way that, like any good noir movie, the mystery kind of unfolds as you're going, and if you're paying attention, you can kind of figure everything out on your own, and it's rewarding in that sense. Like, frankly, the first encounter between De Niro's character, Louis Cypher, (laughs) I'm blinking really fucking hard right now, and Harry Angel, Mickey Rourke, that entire initial conversation laying out, here's the MacGuffin, here's the mystery, these are the things I know now, I need you to go do the rest of the legwork. It perfectly lays out what's going to happen, and you have all the information that you need to know to figure out what's going on just from that first conversation. But it's an issue of getting the context that lets you kind of fully unfold what's happening. It's also, too, more about the character's journey and him kind of coming to the realization of what's going on and how he gets it wrong in so many instances. You know, most noir movies are full of fucking dead ends and red herrings and that kind of thing. I mean, Chinatown, right, is one of the more, like, well-known, obvious ones. There's lots of voodoo in this movie. There's lots of that background happening. There is a character who is a voodoo priestess. And ultimately, voodoo has nothing really to do with this. No. So I like how the movie also kind of calls attention to this because at one point, and it's kind of deeper into the movie, like it's after he follows Tootsuite out to the field and he finds him and her in this voodoo ritual where they like behead a chicken, pouring the blood all over herself and they're all dancing. And he later on brings that up to her. He's just like, you know, bodies are dropping all around me. Like I'm dealing with all this voodoo shit. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm not ready for any of this. And she she basically calls him out as just like, how is your religion any better than mine? You yeah. literally worship a deity that is nailed to a cross and murdered. We're not going around murdering people. This is how we express our beliefs. And like, that's kind of where the movie leaves it with the whole voodoo angle. Yeah. And that's kind of where I think this movie does a better job of handling that topic. Because, like you mentioned, tons and tons of other movies prior to this position voodoo as this very malevolent, fundamentally evil and malicious kind of thing, right? And the people that practice it are inherently bad, right? When the only practitioners we meet are all victims in this movie. Well, that too. The ultimate evil that's revealed is very much more of a Christian Catholic style evil. You know, so much of pop culture being filtered through this white lens where voodoo was kind of shorthand for like evil black people stuff. This movie doesn't really play that game, and I think it's interesting that Harry Angel kind of initially approaches it that way, but then that's the mistake, is, wait, that has nothing to do with anything. You know, voodoo is not behind this entire mystery, and the people who are practicing the voodoo aren't necessarily involved in any way that that is a reason or a motivation or whatever. I think the interesting part of that, too, is that of all the white characters in this movie, Harry Angel is the most most 
I guess, for lack of better terms, progressive. Like he doesn't mind talking with people of color and get answers. He's playing with the children in that one scene. He's more humanistic. Well, he's sure. more humanistic, but even at the end of the day, he is kind of still being racist in terms of his apprehension towards voodooism. Yes. While he's not quite outright saying it, that's kind of what's going on here. And then that's again when she calls him out on his bullshit is a very satisfying scene. And that's also again when you realize voodoo doesn't have anything to do with this. Yeah. It's just kind of red herring. A red herring. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing too, again, if we're going to talk about things that we think worked, obviously the joke about this movie has always been Lewis Cipher. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) What's interesting though is there's so many other name references throughout this movie that aren't, you know, immediately obvious. So Lewis Cipher mentions that his two attorney contacts that Angel would be kind of working through are named Winesap and Macintosh. Those are both types of apples, mm-hmm. Garden of Eden. Isn't Winesap the one that's killed off screen and like he even says, oh, what's well, one less lawyer in the world? Yeah. The younger detective, Detective Deimos, is named after a Greek mythos character who is the son of Ares and Aphrodite, who is the personification of terror. Yeah. They mention that Ethan Cruzmark goes to the sanitarium and checks out Harry Angel, right, under the name Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly was a 16th century English alchemist and occult magician. We know that we are looking for Johnny Favorite, this crooner. That's who Harry Angel has been hired to track down. His original name was Johnny Liebling, which is German for sweetheart or darling, hence Johnny Favorite. And then obviously, like, Epiphany's relevance is totally obvious, right? An epiphany is when you come to some sudden realization, revelation, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of name work going on here. True to noir tropes as well. Obviously, noir movies are typically black and white, especially from the actual noir period. So when your entire color palette is strictly defined to black and white and then the shades of gray in between, there's a lot of symbolism that happens with costuming or sets or items, right? Like the black signifying evil or death or doom, white signifying goodness, life whatever right those are also obvious things but that's important to the costuming here right cypher is always wearing black angel starts off wearing this light tan suit and the suit by the way seems like it is not his suit seems like it is maybe a little bit too big for him yeah but that suit continues to get dirtier and more torn up as the movie as he goes on yeah this movie almost felt a little bit like a greek tragedy too as it progressed yeah there's a lot of allusions and references to greek underworld myths and that kind of stuff within this yeah and To the point that you made earlier, by the end of the movie, when everything is completely fucking upside down, Ethan Cruzmark shows up as a literal fucking Satanist, and he's now wearing white. So everything has completely flipped, and just the whole idea that outer appearances are often deceiving <laughs> which again it's funny to me like how the red herring is is voodooism and all these people of color practicing this religion or this belief system but then like he meets the wealthy white businessman who owns half of new orleans and he's the fucking satanist <laughs> like yeah, yeah. and it, like that's kind of how it would be in real life i think that is a horror noir trope that i fucking love 
And in general, too, that's part of why I love this movie. I love any kind of horror, noir, mystery, detective thing. You know, I've always loved this movie. Cast the Deadly Spell is maybe a little more goofy, but that movie is also a blast. That's a lot of what I love about the Hellboy comic universe, is there is so much of that noir aspect to those stories. That's really interesting. Just like combining Wild West with Supernatural, Supernatural also works really well with noir. Yeah. All right. So like we've laughed about it. We've beaten around the bush. Like Louise Cipher is Lucifer. Um, If you didn't get that joke earlier. Yeah. The biggest twist. But there are, like you said, Aaron, there's more that the movie reveals. Even if you catch this really early on. The first scene when he meets Louise Cipher, he is going on and on about, oh, this Johnny favorite has a contract that he like reneged on. And yeah, I always honor my contracts and like he needs to deliver blah, blah, blah. And he's beating around the bush like it's like, okay, I get it. He sold his soul to you. You found a loophole and a way out. You want him found so you can take his soul. It's time to collect. So that was the first twist. Like I got immediately. The second twist which there's not really anything necessarily, at least in this the first meeting scene that, that gives us away. But I was pretty much just like, oh, Harry Angel is is him. They're the same person. And the movie is going to reveal like how that came to be. Yeah. Maybe Louis Cipher kind of knows, but like he can't collect his soul until Harry Angel realizes that he is Johnny Favorite. So that's why he sends him yeah. on this goose chase. There has to be that self-realization. Yeah. So those are like the two big twists. And But again, like knowing that right off the bat didn't change the movie for me. And like you said, Aaron, there's other revelations that come later as to like how fucked up Johnny Favorite's life really was and the things he did for power when like you find out the things he did to other people and the people he quote unquote maybe loved or whatever. That's when the revelations really are like kind of jaw dropping. Yeah. But yeah, it's a story that's pretty interesting and pretty creative. Like the idea of the devil hiring a private detective to find a lost soul for him. That's a pretty interesting, good, like supernatural noir premise. And then it stays true to the idea of the devil is a trickster. And like every devil story, like you should never trust the devil because then like, of course it writes itself. The twist is the detective he hires is the soul he's looking for. And that's, it's very clever. Well, true. Like any story that involves the devil, you're always going to get fucked in the end. Exactly. One way or another. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the ultimate, if we're going to talk actual fears and phobias in real life shit that the movie kind of plays to, you know, obviously this is a period detective movie, can't relate to that in modern life, right? And obviously like it deals with supernatural shit that's not real, but the whole idea really of what's worse, realizing that you're not who you think you are and that your memories are all lies or learning the full truth and it's actually all fucking way worse than you could have imagined you're damned either way but you know which of those is ultimately where you want to you know live the rest of your life and that's kind of the choice that harry angel has throughout the course of this entire journey is him just coming to this realization you know because there are several times where he tries to bow out of the whole thing and it's really only his own kind of greed and ambition and just lackadaisical like I have nothing else going on kind of nature that compels him further it's his curiosity but at any given point you could have taken that first approach of just yeah I'm a little bit fucked up things are always kind of weird but like hey whatever I'm gonna go back to Brooklyn and he maybe would just be fine but the devil knows how to tempt and the devil knows how to pull those strings just the right way that kind of drew him into the story 
you know, and that's ultimately, again, where the like, you get fucked in the end kind of thing comes from. And I think that's how I kind of knew he was Johnny Favorite, because almost right off the bat, he's seeing these weird visions. Yeah. Usually like with this person in a black cloak. He constantly is going back to like their moments from the end of World War II when all the soldiers are celebrating in the streets of New York City. He has these visions of going down an elevator and of blood and all this and that. And I think that's when I was like, okay, he is Johnny Favorite. How he becomes Johnny Favorite, I think I have an idea. And I was sort of on the right track with what actually happens. But I I didn't try and figure that out because I just wanted to let the movie kind of show me itself. Yeah. Which I think is the right way to do it. And it is an interesting reveal. The only vision that didn't make much sense to me, because I like the idea that Louis Cipher's office is also sharing this evangelical church where like this reverend is kind of obviously a huckster and he's taking all the money from like his parishioners. Which my, one of my favorite shots in this movie is when Harry Angel's in the hallway and the like, camera is up on the stairs and he kind of is like right in this hall- doorway and he kind of walks into the door. The movie does it, that shot twice, I think. But the first time he goes to see Louis Cipher, at the same time, there's like this evangelical preacher that's going on and says like, hey, show me your money. Show that you love God by giving me your money, yeah. basically. He says like, open up your hearts and open up your wallets. Yeah, Wallets. Yeah. And like, of course, the devil would make his home or his office yeah, sharing that false corrupt church yeah. church yeah and then of course there was like a uh, another practitioner who committed suicide in that one room with the woman trying to clean the guy who blew his brains out in that one room like that bathroom or whatever the only vision or like scene that kind of felt out of place to me and i don't really understand why and i wanted to ask you he goes back there and this is when he's still in new york he sees the person in like the black cloak and then he goes to touch it and then he's jumped by those two guys and they chase him through new york what the fuck was that all about so we see that figure in black a couple times throughout the movie it's a figure that he is drawn to for some reason and we never really see who that figure is. We just see that figure. I think they're tied to Satan. Cleaning like, up yeah. blood. We see that figure sitting in the church at that moment. And then at the very end, crucially, when he goes back to his room and discovers Epiphany's body, that figure is also sitting outside of his room, right? Yeah. I think that character is just this avatar, you know, portend of death that's kind of there as a guidepost by fucking Satan, by Louis Cipher, that's kind of pointing him in the direction he needs to look in. You know, and that character is kind of always there following him yeah. in the background to a degree. Like, I think it's literally just a signpost, I think. I don't think there's, like, any deeper implication beyond that. I got that whole thing. It's more of the two guys showing up out of nowhere and jumping him and then chasing him through New York. What the fuck was that for? And, like, why did they do that to him? And then that scene kind of just ends and he's, like, at the bar with that woman who got information for him. You know, it, it could be as simple as he was maybe instead of moving forward he was turning around to essentially look back and examine and interrogate who is louis cipher what is his motivation where is he from what is he doing here you know maybe it was kind of this weird supernaturally motivated we need to get him 
out of here. We need to get him moving forward toward the ultimate goal. And those two guys essentially are just the push that's moving him in that direction. Yeah, I guess so. He had no interactions with the reverend, the false preacher. He was waiting in Louis Cipher's office for a while when he wasn't there. And then that's when he runs into the black hooded figure. And then those two guys jump him. So yeah, that makes sense. That was the only part of this movie that I was like, where the fuck does this fit in? Sure. Why was it there? Which also makes me realize that I did appreciate this. This movie actually spends more time in New York than I thought it did. And it takes its time in New York before it does move down to New Orleans, which was nice because it gave him a good reason. He basically met all the dead ends he could find in New York. Now it was time to actually go down to New Orleans and figure it out. And I appreciate this anytime movies or stories with the devil in it do this. But I always appreciate that trope of the devil's kind of sense of humor because he's always in a church. Like when they meet in New Orleans, he's in that giant cathedral. He's even like, oh, don't curse. This is a church. Like, (laughs) Mind your respect. Yeah. That's just a weird throwaway trope with the devil that I always appreciate in stories. Yeah, because he's fully aware of, you know, the rules because he is all about rules. Again, like everything with the devil is about technicalities and loopholes. And you listen to the words I said, but not the actual intention. So I really meant XYZ. You know, it's all about those kinds of deceptions. You know, obviously he's, you know, the Lord of Deceit. It's interesting when he chooses to play by the rules to make a point. Yeah. His eyes also like Louis Cyphers, that is Lucifer. His eyes always also kind of light up in a way that I thought was funny when they're in that church. Louis Cyphers like, are you an atheist? And he goes, yeah, I am. I'm from Brooklyn. But yeah. when he finds out he's an atheist, it tickles Louis Cypher, which I thought was a nice little side throwaway thing. Yeah. So like on the note of creative jokes and like jokes that kind of fit in a noir setting, I, I did like write down a couple quotes with Harry Angel being like the noir character in this movie. That whole bit when he's just like, hey, you ever watch the Mickey Mouse Club? Because you know what today is. Yeah. Today is it's Wednesday. Anything can happen day. Or uh, when Lucifer reveals himself as like Louis Cypher, Lucifer. Alas, how terrible is wisdom when it brings no profit to the wise, Johnny. Louis Cipher, Lucifer. <laughs> Even your name is a dime store joke. Mephistopheles is such a mouthful in Manhattan, Johnny. I, I love his other, which was... You think posing... Is the devil just because it scared some superstitious old guitar player and and that witch and that nutty old man? You think it's going to scare me? (laughs) It ain't. Because I know who I am. And you killed them. And you're trying to pin it on me. And I know who I am. If I had cloven hooves and a pointed tail, would you be more convinced? Right? What is the devil? What constitutes the devil? What are we expecting when we say, like, the devil's coming? That whole bit where, like, Cajun cooking kills me, and then minutes later he discovers that guy's fucking dead body in the, like, boiling gumbo. Well, so to that point, again, you know, everything being kind of spelled out as we go along, every single one of the murders is completely foretold. 
ahead of time. Yeah. Not just through like a joke or a reference or a connection, but Harry actually handles every single fucking murder weapon before the murder happens, right? He finds the hollowed out Bible with the bullets in it. He picks up the knife at Margaret Cruzmark's apartment. He has Toots' razor blade, and he even fucks around with the pot of gumbo at the end, right? Every single instance, you know, is something that he has already put his hands on physically observed one way or another. And to take it a step further, when he's at the witch woman's place, not only does he handle that ceremonial dagger that he later kills her with, he kind of messes with that vase thing, that small, like, little vase thing that has his dog tags. That's the key to this entire mystery and yeah if he had just looked a little bit further you know he would have come to this realization a lot earlier sure speaking of dumb jokes i love when louis cypher is like oh yeah the egg symbolizes the soul and then proceeds to fucking sit there and just munch on eggs is he eating souls because he's lucifer get it yeah But him dumping salt all over that egg, offering one to Harry Angel, who then takes a pinch of salt, throws it over his shoulder, which is meant to, like, blind the devil on your back, right? Like, it's one of those superstition things. Well, salt in general is used in a lot of occult, supernatural stuff. Putting the ring of salt around you to protect you from those who would wish you harm and throwing the salt over your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Kind of to circle back around. Again, we're talking about... You know, oh, practices of voodoo. You know, it's so primitive. It's so violent. It's so gross. You know, like voodoo is so exotic and weird and, you know, whatever. And yet there's constantly people doing dumb little superstitious things like that. But because it's like Christian superstition, it's like, oh, it's okay. Nobody bats an eye over that. But that's one thing I think is interesting about Epiphany, I guess, to circle back around to like our conversation about costuming and symbolism and all that kind of stuff and names, right? The first time that we meet Epiphany, she's washing her hair and her shirt is like completely see-through, right? And yeah, that's titillating. But it's interesting because that whole symbolism, especially if we're talking about like costumes, people wearing white, people wearing black, the fact that you can see through her clothes to her is interesting because she's the only character who's not hiding who and what she really is at the end of the day. The fact that that transparency is there, she is being completely above board with who she really is from the beginning and the deception is not with her whereas every other character is purposely being deceptive about who they are and what they're into and what their relation to harry is she's the only person who's being upfront with it but again symbolism yay tits she honestly kind of reminded me of a character out of the bible and at least in that very first scene when she's revealed and i don't know like if there's any actual ties to this in the bible but she kind of reminded me oddly of mary magdalene in some ways sure yeah kind of an outcast kind of not socially accepted but is one of the more pure true honest people yeah like despite being a sinner like because they're all sinners she's the one who's actually honest about it yeah and that's something I kind of realized, too, and it adds a little more credence to the earlier scenes that at least as far as the cruise marks go and the doctor, they all must recognize Harry Angel as Johnny favorite. Like they knew what the fuck was happening because at least who was it? Was it Ethan and Margaret that were at the like what happens in New York back during World War end of World War Two? I think Margaret knows 
I don't yeah. know that Ethan does because another plot point is that his face was disfigured. And yeah. the last time they saw him, his face was all bandaged up. So they would know that he will look different, but they don't know what he looks like. I think Charlotte, though, sees through that and she realizes who he is. Charlotte. Oh, you mean Margaret? Mar yeah, Charlotte Rampling. Margaret. Sorry. Yeah, Margaret. Margaret Cruzmark. Margaret yeah. Cruzmark. Yeah. The witch. I think she is aware of what's going on. But I don't know, you know, it's interesting to see, like, who does and does not recognize. Like, I don't think Toots recognizes him. No. The doctor, obviously, like, doesn't recognize him. And you could chalk it up to, like, well, he's fucking drugged up, you know, I don't know. But I think Margaret Cruzmark is the only character who, like, sees through it. But she's also one of the characters who, because of her predilections to dark magic and all that kind of shit, she sees a lot of stuff that's not maybe obvious to everybody else. Well, there is almost like a Fight Club-esque undercurrent to this movie because, like, granted, we never see Johnny Favorite except briefly yeah. in the flashes of the murders. But everybody seems to know something that they're not telling. Yeah. Even characters that aren't tied into the story, like when he goes into the herb shop, the woman that's running the place gives a couple of knowing looks to the guys that are there. You know, like, they are aware of something. We, as the audience, just don't know what that necessarily is yet. Yeah. But that's certainly an element of, again, film noir that's common, is just people knowing more than what they're letting on. Letting on, yeah. you're discovering these things as the protagonist is discovering them too yeah. or they're leading you down false avenues on purpose to kind of let you trip and fall into some kind of revelation so the thing that i found fascinating too is why johnny favorite was even revealing himself and murdering and taking out all his past associates as harry angels meeting them and kind of retrospect i'm wondering if it was his way to cover his own tracks like maybe if i kill off these people then harry angel will never realize that he's me and therefore lucifer can't claim my soul Otherwise, like, I couldn't really understand why he was killing these people off. I mean, I think that's exactly it. And that's a good segue, actually, to kind of get into discussing some of the differences between this movie and the original source book. Yeah, because I, I didn't look up anything on the source book, to be honest with you. I know there's a sequel that was released after the author's death, and it was actually released, like, with the last couple of years. But uh, I don't know how the book ends. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's way more open-ended than the way this movie ends, if there was a sequel. <laughs> So one of the biggest things is in the book, it is positioned that Louis Cipher has been killing all these people okay, and leading Harry Angel to that ultimate revelation. The sequel book, which came out in October of 2020, so I mean, it just came out. I mean, it came out posthumously. Yeah. It is called Angel's Inferno. It is about Harry Angel pursuing Louis Cipher from New York to Paris to the Vatican, kind of seeking more answers and seeking revenge. And I mean, he's now fully aware of the duality to who he is, that he's essentially these two souls trapped in this one body. And one is a fucking maniac Satanist. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there is that aspect. Another major difference between the book and the movie is the book is entirely set in New York. Interesting. There's no New Orleans? There wow. Is, 
mentions of New Orleans, but none of it is actually there. Now, because of the voodoo angle and some of the other mentions of things down in New Orleans, Hjortsberg actually suggested to Alan Parker that he shift the setting down to New Orleans for that second half of the movie. I think the New Orleans stuff works really well. So, Oh, it totally does. It absolutely does. And it's part of what gives this movie a lot of its flavor. Another aspect is that the Louis Cipher character is toned down a bit from the novel, which kind of <laughs> hard to think, considering that De Niro shows up with a literal goatee, a fucking cane, a pentagram ring. Nails that are like sharp. Fucking nails, yeah. right? It's kind of wild to think that that character was more ridiculous in the novel, but apparently so. <laughs> is he like fucking has a pitchfork on his skin? Like what? Oh, corny. So for instance, the place where Harry Angel initially meets him is 666 5th Avenue. Oh my god. So like, <laughs> stuff like that toned down. And the other big thing, and I mean this, this will get me into like a larger discussion of film TM. I'm Werner Herzog and this is One difference is that Parker rewrote the screenplay to be set in 1955 rather than 1959, which is when the novel takes place. And his reasoning was like, look, that four years, right? That doesn't seem like a whole lot. 1959, though, is basically the 60s. And when you think about the 60s, it's this time where, you know, society was changing and progressing into this more modern era, blah, blah, blah. Mm, your brain doesn't necessarily go to like noir, right? So just moving yeah. it backward a few years meant that it was therefore closer to the end of World War II. From a textual definition level, noir film is stuff that took place between 1940 and 1960. That's the 20-year window in which noir, you know, stories were set, particularly post-war. You know, so much of what noir is rooted in is a lot of the, like, post-war unease and anxiety and darkness that people were coming back to. A lot of veterans returning home and just not finding a place to fit in and, well, and there was crime even and still, all that. Yeah, it's still, like organized crime in the way of mafia and everything else sure a lot of those remnants are still left over again if we're talking about like the climate of new orleans and well not to say that much has changed in the south the south is still an awful fucking place <laughs> there was just a lot more overt very much on the surface out in the forefront racism so just moving the movie backwards a few years meant that you were close to the era that noir is really centered in but it also means that they could essentially set dress and decorate and costume to look even older because just by function of how life works, society kind of went on pause during World War II. Yeah. Right? Society kind of stopped around 1938 and didn't really pick back up again until like 1948. You know, there was like that weird 10 years where like clothing didn't really change a whole lot. Vehicles didn't really change a whole lot. Movies, music, pop culture, just life seemed to be on a pause for a while. And frankly, we're kind of living through that right now with COVID. We always joke about how the last couple of years have been like a time vortex. Really, society went on pause for a couple of years, you know, like that's just it is what it is. So it allowed them to kind of set the movie back 
in a more appropriate time period. Now, here's where I'll kind of go into my, like, weird spiel, I guess. This is all essential to how film noir is categorized, right? And like we said at the beginning, this is a neo-noir, right? Neo-noir is like its own entire huge genre. You know, noir movies are typically set between 1940 and 59. And particularly the movies that were made during that era, those are what's considered to be noir. The term neo-noir was kind of coined in the 70s, which were referring to films that had the same story tropes and style, but set during the present age, right? Stuff like the remake of The Long Goodbye is a perfect example of like, it is the same exact fucking detective story, but it is set in the 70s firmly. Now, personally, I feel like that time frame needs to be a little more neo than the new Hollywood era. I think it's kind of weird that what we consider to be noir is just that 20 year period. And yet what we consider to be neo-noir is literally 60 years worth of cinema. And we can't fucking look at a movie that came out from five years ago and compare it to a movie that came out 20 years ago, let alone 40, let alone 60 years ago. You can't say L.A. Confidential and The Driver are like at all in the same sphere of being. So I don't know, like I kind of feel like that whole new Hollywood era, let's redefine that as mezzo-noir. Like that's what I'm proposing (laughs) to the film communities. Let's call that mezzo-noir. Let's make that middle-noir and really in my mind and frankly like i took a film noir you know entire class when i was in film school frankly like in my mind what is considered neo noir is really 1990 onward like right around kind of late 80s early 90s is when that shift to neo really happens because at that point you're not just doing detective stories set in the modern era you are completely turning the box inside out you are transmuting it you are looking for like new different ways to tell those stories and right around that time when you have who framed roger rabbit satirizing that entire genre and you have john woo's the killer and la femme nikita that are taking that genre to the complete opposite side of the world it's clear that that old era is coming to an end and you also then have king of new york and new jack city and deep cover that are bringing like 80s 90s hip-hop urban style to the genre not necessarily black exploitation like we had in the 70s this is a new modern kind of thing and frankly like scorsese is remaking one of the earliest post-noir classics cape fear and fucking tarantino is about to finally like burn down the indie house and start things really really going with reservoir dogs right after this too to me in my mind that is where like neo-noir really starts to happen and this movie that we're talking about angel heart is right in the middle of that transition where it is still a detective story with all the tropes that you're used to and all the style and it is set firmly in that era but this movie has that horror edge it is much more explicit about the sexual angle it's much more serious again there's no camp to this there's no like see, 
you know, it is kind of caught right in the middle of this transition of that mezzo-noir to neo-noir era. And that's where I find this movie to be very interesting because you can tell that they're trying to do something with this that hasn't necessarily been done before. And they're trying to kind of take this and move it in a different direction. And it's interesting, too, because this movie is really the only movie in Alan Parker's filmography that doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of his stuff. So this is like an interesting swing for him as well, too. So the only reason why this is classified as neo-noir then is because it was shot in 1986, 1987, even though it takes place in 1955. Yeah, the definition, which again, which is why I think it's dumb, is just anything that, you know, was made post, you know, 1960 is considered to be neo-noir. <laughs> even though it's 60 years later and we're still using that right. subgenre. Yeah, yeah. Miller's Crossing, which is a movie that is now 30 years old, it's Coen Brothers movie, that movie is firmly set during the time period and it is all the same exact tropes. Make that movie black and white, change the stars, it's functionally a traditional noir, noir. but it's considered yeah. a neo-noir. Right. And I don't know that I necessarily buy that per uh, well, se. Well, and I'm glad you explained that because I, I thought the reason why I got the neo-noir classification is because it also deals with horror and it has the devil and it's supernatural. No. I didn't realize that that was just a timeline period. Like, yeah, because it, it's kind of crazy that noir only encapsulates like 20 years of films. And then we've just been in neo-noir since then, period, no matter what, even though there's like a thousand different subgenre movies in under neo-noir. Well, we talk about this all the time with music and everything else. Having to apply genre labels is already kind of a dumb exercise yeah. but it's necessary because you have to like contextualize and it's a way that you can like associate one thing with these other things in terms of being able to taste make and identify and like categorize and figure out where you're going to put this on your shelf and that kind of thing like ultimately it is a pointless exercise but yeah, yeah I feel like at this point 60 years of quote neo-noir like you got to kind of delineate it a little bit better we maybe even need to come up with a better label for, again, noir story tropes and style, but set in a modern era. Well, that modern era, what is modern era is always a sliding scale. Yeah. You know, again, like the term just makes no sense at this point. So, yeah, it's almost like the idea of comic books like Marvel and DC on the sliding scale timeline. And it's well, just the same. It's the same thing with like Bronze Age, Silver Age, Golden Age. Yeah. Where does that start and stop? And like, what's the yeah. difference really? Because you still have comics now that are like set in the 50s and 60s, but like yeah. those aren't fucking Bronze Age, right? And and right now the age we're in right now is technically the modern age, which makes me wonder like, then what the fuck are they going to call future ages of comics exactly. after the modern age? Right. Well, it, classic rock. What the fuck is classic rock? Like right now when Soundgarden is technically considered yeah. classic, classic rock, rock, where do you stop? Yeah, it's all a sliding scale. But then in our minds, it's like that rock it's like ccr and shit like that <laughs> yeah exactly so looking into some noir and noir stories there is some real fucked up shit that happens in noir movies and stories all the time oh yeah especially some of the like early pre-code stuff real interesting yeah yeah 
Yeah, like especially in the comics. Precode comics in general were fucking wild and violent. Yeah, and that's like its own separate thing too. Yeah. Yeah. So like we won't even get into that, but like yeah, just precode anything noir is pretty fucked up. But like it is interesting because in my modern mindset with like noir, where this movie felt like it subverts a lot and becomes dangerous and becomes transgressive and maybe even a little exploitative. So when all the cards are on the table, Johnny Favorite sold his soul for fame to become a musician. He tries to get out of the deal by by abducting a soldier, Harold Angel, a random soldier off the streets of New York City, and him and the witch, I don't remember if there were other people involved, do that black magic ceremony, cutting out his heart. Yeah. He basically absorbs his soul and becomes Harry Angel. That's kind of those weird flashes and parts of the visions and stuff you've been seeing are that. You're seeing the previous guy's memories, yeah. Yeah, of, of him being murdered. That's all revealed. Lucifer has a final confrontation with him when he goes back to Margaret's house and he finds her heart has been cut out and then he remembers and he sees all the visions of him killing everyone and then he comes to realization that that includes epiphany if you've been following along you realize epiphany was johnny favorite's daughter yeah and where this gets oops really fucked up is not a few scenes earlier she appeared at harry angel's apartment and like stays the night with him and they have like aggressive sex oh they bang yeah they rock each other's world pretty hard so when that revelation happens you're like ooh. <laughs> yeah so like he he has sex with his own daughter and like that whole scene is also uncomfortable a anyway like even before you realize that because the water is leaking because there's a storm outside but then it turns into blood yeah and then you realize he got maybe a little too into the fucking because it's ending with him choking her and she's screaming that's all fucked up but then he punches the mirror and stared at his fractured reflection oh, yeah symbolism but then you realize that johnny favorite in a way kind of allowed harry angel to bang his own daughter and then he murders his own daughter because like that's when harry angel like leaves margaret's house like after he confronts lucifer runs back to the hotel we see that flash of like the hooded figure again and he's confronted by the detectives who like have basically pegged all the murders on him and like they've discovered epiphany's dead body her child is there and like one of the only things in this movie that doesn't work for me is that whole side plot that epiphany's kid is basically the antichrist product of lucifer impregnating her because she has that whole story about like who's the father and it was like some supernatural force that overtook her and she doesn't remember and like it was the best sex she's ever had he even makes a joke like there's no father to interrupt there that's the one element of this story that i've never really understood because she does Same. kind of mention it in that offhanded way but we also don't really get an answer to it either we just have the final scene where the baby has fucking thriller eyes yeah and he has the same eyes as louis cypher which when you see those eyes on uh robert de niro as the devil like it works like it's creepy sure when you see it on the baby it looks it's really thriller fucking yeah. weird it looks like thriller which is the only thing ruining an otherwise amazing horror yeah. ending because what are we supposed to take from oh this baby's maybe evil are we supposed to be invested in what happens to the baby afterward are we supposed to be i just took it as like like louis right? cypher birth the antichrist and i don't know why harry angel's grandbaby is the choice for that and they're yeah. never told or explained that's the one element at this movie that i'm just i'm still like kind of whatever about but yeah like that idea that when he's in tyler durden mode and johnny favorites taking over again for a second murdering off all those people that he's like talked to and then murdering epiphany his own daughter pretty fucked up and especially after harry angel had sex with her all of that is gory all of that is really like horrific and all the revelations are horrific mickey Rourke's no no it can't be true kind of acting was a little rough i felt like it's pretty big yeah 
Yeah. Otherwise, I, I enjoyed it. The thing that I really loved was because there's no happy ending in this movie. The last shots are actually over the end credits are him descending in the elevator. And you've been seeing this vision of him in the elevator going down like all movie. Yeah. And now it's him like going all the way down, implying he's going to hell. Credits end and the last shot is the elevator doors opening and you hear Louis Cipher's voice whisper both Johnny and Harry, basically like referencing that I guess he claims dominion over both their souls, which uh, that sucks for Harry Angel because he asked for none of this. Like, yeah, he just was a random victim that got black magic into uh, becoming Johnny favorite. And now he's in hell because of it. Yeah. Oops. So, you know, again, kind of to go back to the uh, production, we mentioned this is an adaptation of Falling Angel. It was written by William Hjortsberg, who wrote this David Carradine script, Thunder and Lightning, and weirdly enough, wrote fucking Legend, the Ridley Scott fantasy movie. It was originally optioned by fucking Robert Evans at Paramount, and it was going to be directed by John Frankenheimer. So let me ask you this, because obviously they rewrote a lot of the movie script to be different from the book. How does the book end then? Because you said none of it takes place in New Orleans. What I mentioned earlier, uh, you find out that Louis Cipher is the one who murdered everyone. Yeah. But like, is Louis Cipher the devil? Yes. And that he's just in the wind and Harry Angel is just left with the shattered realization of, oh, I am this guy. But like, is Johnny Favorite still owing his soul to Lucifer? I mean, theoretically, yeah. Yes, but that doesn't get resolved in the novel. See, the way it works in this movie makes a lot more sense it's to me. It's more definitive. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Frankenheimer was originally supposed to direct this. He got replaced with Dick Richards. Dustin Hoffman was going to be the lead for a hot second. Paramount lost their option to it. Just overall, this was another instance where like the script floated around for a fucking decade before getting made because every producer that got their hands on it, they all wanted a happy ending. They all hated the ending. They all wanted a happy, more resolved ending. Robert Redford was even attached to star in this at one point, and producers were like, no, we want a different ending. Eventually, Elliot Kastner approached Alan Parker, you know, around 1985 and said, hey, let's adapt this. Parker had read the novel when it was published, and he was just like, yeah, sure, I'll take a crack at the screenplay. So right there, we've already dumped the original William Hjortsberg because he tried to, like, adapt his own novel. We've already thrown out his version of the script, and now Alan Parker is writing it from scratch. Parker partnered with Mario Kassar and Andrew Vajna at Kiroko Pictures, which, man, anytime that you see those two guys' names show up in the credits of a movie, you know you're probably in for a banger. Kassar and Vajna are just two weird producer names that are, like, burned into my head. (laughs) give you an idea, The Eagle Has Landed, The Silent Partner, The Changeling, which we have covered on this show previously. Not just First Blood, but the entire Rambo trilogy. (laughs) Extreme Prejudice. Prince of Darkness, which we have covered on this show. Fuck yeah. They Live, which we have covered on this show. Fuck yeah. Deep Star Six. Lock Up. Shocker. Total Recall. Jacob's Ladder, which we will be covering on this show. The Doors. The fucking 1991 Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Oh, Dolph Lundgren one? Yeah, yeah. Terminator 2. Basic Instinct, Universal Soldier, Light Sleeper, Cliffhanger, Stargate, Showgirls, and Cutthroat Island. 
which is the fucking movie that bankrupted the hell out of them. You and I talked about this movie when we were both talking about how much we love The Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, which is a great Christmas action movie, by the way. Yeah, it is. Rennie Harlan directed it. Gina Davis met him, I believe, on that movie, and they got married. Well, Cutthroat Island was like the follow-up. It's this giant fucking pirate epic, and I can't remember who was supposed to star in it originally, but that person bailed, and it was like, oh, Matthew Modine is now the lead? Oops. And it was this huge, massive fuck-up that bankrupted Carolco Pictures entirely. I will say, uh, talk about like early sexual awakenings. Gina Davis and Long Kiss Goodnight was a <laughs> sexual awakening for me. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Ellen Parker offered the Harry Angel role to De Niro. And De Niro was like, no, I'm actually more interested in the Louis Cipher role. Interesting. But he still had to be like fucking convinced of it. Parker then went to Pacino. He also went to Jack Nicholson. And both of them were like, nah, now nah, we're good. Um, and it's interesting, too, because this is like right around the Al time Al Pacino that- would go on, though, to play the devil in the Keanu Reeves movie. So, yeah, not only does Al Pacino go on to play the devil and the devil's advocate, but this same exact fucking year... Jack Nicholson is playing the devil in George Miller's The Witches of Eastwick. Which all three of them, Robert De Niro, Jack Nicholson, and uh, Al Pacino are all such good casting ideas for the devil. And are actually all kind of fun to varying degrees, right? It's always fun to play the game of what are your favorite depictions of the devil? I'll plug another podcast here, but F This Movie, which Patrick Bromley was on our 100th episode where we did Texas Chainsaw. So yeah, we love their show. For their 666th episode, they literally just sat and talked about like what their favorite depictions of the devil are. It's a fun game. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I still think the standout is Constantine Peter Stormare. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I think he might be my favorite depiction of the devil in a movie. But it's still interesting that all three of those dudes were approached for the Harry Angel role, considering that they would all then play the devil in various movies. (laughs) Michael Saracen, like I mentioned earlier, was Alan Parker's DP for about half of his movies, but he also shot Harry Potter Prisoner of Azkaban which like or hate that movie that movie kind of defined visually what the entire rest of that series would look like he also shot both Dawn and War for the Planet of the Apes which are the two Matt Reeves movies that are excellent and weirdly enough his lone directorial debut was a movie called Homeboy which also stars Mickey Rourke playing a boxer so a couple of interesting layers there but yeah like i mentioned too with the production of this movie there were 78 locations that is fucking insane that's a lot and they they shot for real all over new york and new orleans at harlem alphabet city brooklyn coney island staten island hoboken just visually i loved the stuff at coney island because it was like yeah. such a barren fucking wasteland full of trash and everything i've been there it's such a weird like gross kind of place i, I don't is. get the appeal of coney island i sorry anybody that loves coney island that's listening but it's just an odd place to me weirdly enough too he's talking to the guy on the beach izzy and he's like what do you do here he's like oh bite the heads off rats you know what do you do today same thing 
fucking wild too i just watched damien chazelle's babylon because we're still trying to work through all the awards movies this year and fucking geeking totally plays into that movie as well i won't necessarily say how but uh let's just say you definitely see uh heads get bitten off rats for fun (laughs) weird that i like saw both of these movies same day coincidentally but yeah as far as like the new orleans stuff the church is saint alphonsus which was closed in 1979 as the catholic church was like closing different parishes and kind of condensing everything so that building was then transformed into the saint alphonsus art and cultural center gorgeous building it's still there the maple leaf bar on oak street uh there's a lot of stuff shot on magazine street saint charles uh saint peter a lot of the rural scenes were shot in thibodeau louisiana which been there it yeah look much better than it does no, it looks a lot like it does in this movie. Yeah. Um, were, was that supposed to be Algiers? I know Algiers gets name dropped, which listeners, I'm from Algiers. That's where I was born and raised. Was that supposed to be uh, Algiers or no? No, that okay. Uh, well, the movie never really says like the movie. Are, yeah, the what movie never really is. says. And I can't remember like why they referenced Algiers specifically. But it was where Epiphany's mother went. I think that's probably what that was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I just know early on they mentioned Algiers and I was like oh shit that's cool yeah one other weird tidbit uh Robert De Niro and Mickey Rourke still have beef because of this movie what why apparently De Niro refused to interact with Rourke in between scenes and offset just to like keep the dynamic between their characters kind of what it was and Rourke took that personally and has talked shit about De Niro ever since so it was just kind of like a acting choice yeah, on De Niro's it was just part De Niro being like a little methody and Rourke yeah. taking it personally and just be like yo fuck this guy <laughs> on one hand I can respect De Niro doing it because it's Robert fucking De Niro but on the other hand it's like yeah you know method acting fucking is lame so (laughs) (laughs) yeah so let's let's talk about the controversies of this movie so and they they kind of go hand in hand yeah so this is what i've been curious about because like i didn't really read too much into like the controversy for some reason i thought it would be more about the depiction of sex and it being incest oddly enough no that's not at all what people had beef with not at all okay and even though like the voodoo stuff in this movie is still kind of exotic it's never really shown in like a bad light necessarily so like even that was not that controversial and this is like a time when there were several movies dealing with voodoo that were kind of still gross and racist and that was a point of contention which this movie i mean there could still be an argument that it's a little racist like i said there's exoticism to it but but it's it's not not as bad as you would think it shown in like a negative light and it doesn't feel as racially insensitive compared to other movies and again if anything like this movie shows how full of shit a lot of the white people are in this movie totally yeah (laughs) so So anyway the thing that was controversial was the sex scene the first aspect of this is the sex scene's pretty graphic right but not the incest part right that's not that's not what people got upset about okay the sex scene itself was the last thing that lisa bonet and mickey Rourke shot together they knew that it was coming it was all agreed upon ahead of time blah 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 everybody was down the whole thing was unchoreographed and it was both of their first time doing nude scenes and doing sex scenes and apparently it was just alan parker michael saracen the two of them and they were just in that apartment for like four hours filming the thing and they got it over with man that's awkward yeah 
because nowadays <laughs> shit, you would have sensitivity coaches and you would have like all these other people present for that, right? The MPAA demanded that about 10 seconds total of the sex scene be removed to avoid an X rating. Interesting. And we've talked about this many, many times, right? Like X rating is kind of the death bell for a movie because the distributors just won't pick it up. They won't put an X movie in their theater because it's associated with pornography. So they literally had to frame fuck this movie. I mean, you saw the sex scene. It's all cut very, very fast. There's like 60 to 80 cuts in that. That scene so you can't just say oh go in and like snip these two or three frames here these two or three frames there but that's what the MPAA was demanding and it literally came down to oh we just don't want to see Mickey Rourke's butt thrusting that's the point of contention not the fact that there's nudity not the fact that they're clearly having sex not the context of the scene not even the blood or the choking or anything it's just we don't want to see thrusting in this sex scene which is the most stupid fucking asinine argument ever i don't know the ages of actual actors at this point but again beyond the incest part of it there's lots of other stuff you can be upset about yeah her character is 17 in the story and he is in his 30s yeah (laughs) and in real life she was only 18 at the time like she was just barely legal right there's lots of other things you could actually be upset about Parker appealed the MPA twice and lost both times. So he had to trim it, but it was this long fucking expensive and just, it was a pain in the ass because it was literally just frame fucking to take about 10 seconds worth of frames out. Winesap's murder is also shown in brief flashes. He was originally decapitated by a fan. We see lots of fans <laughs> and fan imagery in this movie. You know, again, like allusions to like, oh, the winds of evil evil the devil is coming death is coming right it's also just a cool noir kind of look yeah and they show that the room where angel was sacrificed so johnny favor could assume his identity had that fan yeah the reporter girl that he hooks up with earlier in the movie connie we also see that she was murdered she gets burned to death in a house fire (laughs) that scene was shot but not included in the final film So both of those elements were like considered a little bit too gruesome and kind of were trimmed or left out. Even though we find Margaret topless cut open and her heart is out of her chest. Exactly. Right. The MPAA is fucking ridiculous. So what's weird is there is a TV edit of this movie where they dice up the sex scene with unused footage of soldiers partying at a barracks with several women before being hit by a mortar. So presumably this is the incident where Favorite was injured during World War II. They literally went back in and added all this other shit to like chop up the sex scene, specifically so they could, they could show it on TV. And it's still like way too inappropriate to show on like regular daytime network TV regardless. <laughs> yeah. Again, the MPA is just fucking full of shit that's what you get when you get fucking suburban soccer moms and the clergy together to determine what you know movie ratings are anyway you've got all that bullshit the other big controversial thing about this was lisa bonet's involvement this was her film debut after being on the Cosby show for fucking years. Oofa doofa, there's another thing that hasn't aged well. Well, this is one of those things where, like, the eyes in your head roll back so fucking hard that your head snaps off. 
allegedly, either she approached Cosby for his blessing to be in this movie, and he said he wasn't happy about it, but that he understood why she was taking the role to further her career. The other side of the story was that he was completely fucking outraged from the beginning, and tried talking her out of it, and that it was going to ruin her good girl reputation, and thereby tarnish his show as well, and Bill Cosby, obviously, the fucking gall coming from him, of all people. I'm betting it it was the second story. Oh, well, sure. That seems way more like probably what the case was. Yeah. Also, too, you know, one whole big thing about the Cosby show and like other people are more qualified to speak about it than us two white guys. But that whole show, so much of it was look at this wholesome black American family where the father is a doctor and, you know, well-spoken and they're all attractive and, like, this is the ideal picture of the black American family. And so Bill Cosby was just pissed about the fact that Bill, pull up your pants, young man Cosby, is the one who's mad about this whole, like, oh, you're going to completely tarnish my show by doing this movie. And it's like, bro, fuck off, A. B, she was of age, made her own decisions, that is what it is, but like, again, the fucking nerve of all people, Bill Cosby's the one that's throwing a fucking fit about this, and like, fired her from the show after she made this movie. Didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, this was like a huge fucking stink at the time, because she was a big in the spotlight star at the time. And the fact that he basically gave her the boot from the show because she made this movie was a huge deal. I'm guessing fans of the show weren't happy about that. Oh no, no. I mean, it was like a weird stink all around. And ultimately this movie, I think could have, you know, granted we're talking about it now, 30 years later, right? This movie has gained a very prominent place in like the horror library. Horror fans generally look back at this movie and for the most part, everybody likes this movie. I think it's a very well-regarded movie now. At the time, it was kind of mixed. And the main thing is, I think this movie could have been a bigger hit, both critically and financially, if TriStar had not fucked up the release of this movie. They put it out the same weekend as Lethal Weapon. Oof. Oof. The same weekend that Lethal Weapon <laughs> debuted. Womp womp. This was also when both Platoon and Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors were both still fucking in theaters from their original runs, and they were both doing really fucking well still. So when this movie came out, it debuted at number four at the box office because of all three of those movies. So, like, TriStar picked the wrong fucking weekend, A. It's interesting because I feel like if it would have come out on a weekend where it wasn't challenged, it probably would have done pretty well. That's what I'm saying. It probably would have done way better. I think critics probably would have approached it with a little more openness. Hell, Mickey Rourke even turned down a role in Platoon to be in Angel Heart. You know, he was just going to be like one of the ensemble in that movie, and he was like, I can be the lead in this movie, and yet that's where it ended up. I think I like this movie more than Platoon, if I'm being honest. They're different things altogether. They are different. They're very different. And ultimately, yeah, Angel Heart only grossed $17.2 million on its $18 million budget. Yikes. And, and accounting for like a lot of the back end fucking weird accounting and the marketing and everything else. Movie didn't turn a profit, right? But like I said, since this movie has become very well regarded, 
To the point where you even have people like Christopher Nolan saying, oh yeah, this film was a big influence on like how I chose to tell Memento. I could see that. With kind of that fractured, broken up narrative and you seeing bits and pieces of things kind of all fitting together and this character kind of realizing what's going on and who they really are as the thing goes on, right? I didn't see as much outright stated, like when we covered uh, Eyes Without a Face, obviously the influence that has had on a lot of pop culture is very obvious. Not as much name drop specifically yeah this movie isn't name dropped so much as like that movie is but this still feels like a lot of people borrow from this movie for stuff like nowadays totally and ultimately too like a remake was announced in 2008 but has since nothing has come of that so i don't know i'm not interested in a remake of this movie i think it stands yeah it's unnecessary yeah i think it was like mike deluca who picked it up he was just saying oh yeah i want to like follow the original novel closer okay whatever like there's there's no need for that the ending is such like a a gut punch ending and like a horrific ending that it works so well for a horror movie yeah there's no need to like follow the original novel closer yeah i'm not interested in like harry angel chasing lucifer to the vatican now (laughs) like yeah exactly a couple of other little weird things that'll lead us into the cast discussion so Marlon Brando was originally considered for the Louis Cipher role. Which, oh, my, my, my yeah. uh, I need to track down somebody who's really important to me. Uh, did you know that the, uh, the egg is a, is a symbol of the soul? And, uh, anyway, yeah, he was originally considered. Are we going to do a horror movie with Marlon Brando? Because I really want to. I mean... <laughs> Has he been in any horror movies? Eventually, we'll probably do the fucking crazy remake of uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, eventually. Yeah! <laughs> I forgot he's in that, so yeah. I want a little man who's like a little version of me who like sits on the piano and plays the piano. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. What a fucking wacko, Barry. De Niro (laughs) supposedly was channeling Martin Scorsese, Papa Scorsese, for (laughs) his performance as uh, Louis Cipher. He keeps fucking appearing on our, our podcast. This is cinema. Ooh. I'm Martin Scorsese, and... This is Papa Scorsese. <laughs> so to kind of start with the lower end of the cast, and you know, we'll spend more time on them, I guess, because I think there's some interesting stuff here. Judith Drake, she played Izzy's wife that was waiting out in the ocean when he went to Coney Island. She was the stand-in for the original actress, um, which Judith Drake, interestingly enough, has been in like a lot of horror stuff. She's in Necronomicon, Book of the Dead, which I've brought up on the show a few times. She's in Rumpelstiltskin. She's in Phantoms, Armageddon, House of a Thousand Corpses, Zodiac. She's in Twin Peaks The Return, which, bingo, there's always somebody that's in fucking Twin Peaks. Who is she in The Return? I can't fucking remember. She's just a side character in one episode. She is in Insidious The Last Key. And here's one for you. She plays Lil Kev's mom, and it's always sunny. Kevin's in his room. Go on up if you like. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Gallagher. You must be very, very proud of your son. I mean, he has overcome some pretty difficult odds. Yes, he has. Well, you're talking about the rapping. Excuse me? Those odds you're referring to, you're talking about his rapping career. Well, I guess. Mrs. Gallagher, would you describe your son as a special guy? No, you can't do that. Why can't you can't I do, do that? that? Wrong? Because he's her son. Of course he's special. That's well. easy. Yes, you think he's special. Right? Well, yes. Yeah, that means nothing to me. That means a whole lot. <laughs> Good shit. Nice. R.I.P. She died last May. But yes, yeah, she replaced the original actress, Shirley Stoller, 
she was cast. They filmed that scene, and literally on the first take, a wave fucking knocked her over and swept her out, and she nearly drowned while they were filming. So she fucking quit on the spot. Now, weirdly enough, her singing voice is still in the film, in that moment where she turns around and is singing. Yeah. But yeah, Shirley Stoller, also fucking crazy career. Her first film was The Honeymoon Killers, which was meant to be Scorsese's second feature, but he was fired after only a fucking week of making that movie. Again, everything fucking comes back to Papa Scorsese. She's also in Clute. She's in The Deer Hunter with De Niro. Desperately Seeking Susan. She's on an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse, Three O'Clock High, Frankenhooker, and Malcolm X. So she had a very interesting career. That's some, like, cursed film shit with her, like, getting hit by a wave and almost drowning in that scene. Yeah. The guy that plays Ethan Cruzmark is a New Orleans native named Stalker Fontaloo, which talk about a fucking old timey New Orleans name. Oh man, he was like a character straight out of the last podcast on the left yeah. of just <laughs> Colonel Sanders is actually a Satanist. Yeah. <laughs> Talks about this time where Johnny Favorite summoned Lucifer himself in their yeah. fucking living oh, room. You want some gumbo? You love my gumbo, boy. Oh, his death is my favorite too. Yeah. You knew he was. Was gonna get fucking boiled alive in the gumbo. Yeah, let me tell you all about how we stole your soul, boy. He is in Live and Let Die. Speaking of movies shot in New Orleans with stupid, over-the-top, gross depictions of voodoo. Of voodoo? <laughs> yeah, that movie right? is fucked. The fucking <laughs> black exploitation James Bond movie. Borderline horror movie, by the way, in those scenes. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty Baby, Cat People, The Toy. Big Mama's House 2. A lot of interesting, like, shot in, nice. set in New Orleans shit. And interesting, too, that it's like, oh, dude, you work with Louis Maul, Paul Schrader, and Richard Donner. Like, what the fuck? Pruitt Taylor Vince is, weirdly enough, one of the more well-known people from this cast now, but this was his first movie. He was in Down by Law, the um, Jarmusch movie that's set in New Orleans that has Tom Waits and a bunch of other good people in it. His scenes were cut, though, apparently. But he is then in Barfly, which is the Mickey Rourke movie about Bukowski. He's in Mississippi Burning, which Alan Parker also directed. David Lynch's Wild at Heart. Jacob's Ladder, JFK, Natural Born Killers. Damn, he's in a lot of fucking, like, yeah. important films throughout that time period. He's one of those that guy actors that you would totally recognize as well. Not necessarily in this movie, because he's kind of thin. He's known for being, like, a bigger actor. Well, when he's compared to the other detective, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, especially, yeah. He is in James Mangold's first movie, Heavy. He's in Mumford, The Cell, which we will definitely be covered on the show eventually. Oh, yeah. Identity, which uh, I don't know that we'll be covering all that one eventually, but, you know, we might. No, maybe. Monster, Constantine. Speaking of, we brought up great depictions of the devil. Deadwood, Drive Angry, which is one of our favorite fucking college movies, True Blood, The Devil's Candy, which is definitely on our list of stuff to do, and Bird Box. So he's got a pretty interesting filmography as well. Speaking of the other detective, Detective Stern, that is Elliot Keener. He is also a New Orleans native, which, let me back up, Pruitt Taylor Vince from Baton Rouge. Yeah. Elliot Keener was in Tightrope, Down by Law as well, The Big Easy. Fucking hard target with Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> now, the opposition is about to get one last chance. What kind of a name is Chance? My mama took one. 
Our friend Mr. Boudreaux. Silver Star, Marine Force Recon. He's obviously not someone we should underestimate. Ghosts of Mississippi. He was originally from Madison, Wisconsin. He studied at the University of New Orleans and then at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and the Royal Shakespeare Company in England. And he was a fucking clown for both the Ringling Brothers Circus and the Barnum and Bailey Circuses. The fuck? He owned a dinner theater in Gretna. He taught screenwriting at Tulane and was a founding faculty member of the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Yeah. So, like, fucking wild career. Yeah, you, when you told me that, it's wild. I, I, I forgot that he was a UNO alumni. Toot Sweet is played by a real-life blues musician, Brownie McGee. He seemed like it, yeah. He is really known for his collaboration with harmonica player Sonny Terry. But like I said, he's like a legit musician. He was also in A Face in the Crowd and The Jerk. Apparently, Bo Diddley and Dizzy Gillespie auditioned for this role as well, which, the fuck, that could have been a whole different thing entirely. God, Bo Diddley, could you imagine that? Yeah, really. Michael Higgins, the guy that played Dr. Fowler, he is in The Conversation, Stepford Wives, Rumblefish, School Ties, Synecdoche, New York. Catherine Willowit, who played the nurse in that one scene, she is in Witchboard, Dream Demon, which I know I've brought up on the show before, Roadhouse, she is also in an episode of Twin Peaks. It's the episode where Lucy is obsessed with having a baby, and she is playing either Lucy's best friend or Lucy's sister. I can't remember which. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She's in George Miller's Lorenzo's Oil, which, go back to George Miller again, Fire in the Sky, which we discussed on this show, The Edge, lots of TV. And she is the fucking voice for everybody that's our age, all those 90s kids out there. She's the fucking voice of Pepper Ann. Who's that girl? What's her name? Is she cool? Is she lame? Oh, you're talking about what's her name? Pepper Ann. Is she lame? Is she cool? Is she breaking every rule? Is she anybody's fool? Pepper Ann. Pepper Ann. Pepper Ann. Marching in her own parade. Pepper Ann. She's like one in a million. Pepper Ann. Pepper Ann. Much too cool. Yeah. Uh, so if you were ever a fan of Pepper Ann, there you go. The guy that plays Wine Sap, Dan Florick, is known for Law and Order. He's been on Law and Order and SVU for fucking ever. He's been in like 900 fucking episodes of that show. Is he a lawyer in that too? <laughs> he might be. He might be like one of the weird count. I can't remember. He's always the bald guy that just shows up and is just like, oh, here's a few more things you need to know about this case. And he just kind of disappears, right? Charlotte Rampling plays Margaret Cruz Mark. She has been around a long time. She's in Visconti's The Damned. She's in fucking Zardoz. Hell yeah. The gun is good. The gun is good. The penis is evil. She is in The Night Porter Orca which I think is on our list. I know that it's on mine and Heather's like Valentine's animal attack movie list. The verdict, which is fucking amazing. Swimming pool life during wartime. 
Never Let Me Go, Lars von Trier's Melancholia. Recently, she was in Benedetta, and she is in Dune. She is Mother Helen Mohayam in that. Is is she going to be in the second one, too? Yeah, she's got to be in the second one. Apparently, Rourke suggested her after Parker auditioned a shit ton of American actresses and just didn't quite find the, like, slightly debutante, but also could be kind of fucked up under the surface kind of person that he was looking for. So good on Mickey Rourke for bringing some people in. Lisa Bonet, like we mentioned, Cosby Show, A Different World. Those are kind of the two things that she's really, really mainly known for. I hate to say it's because it is reductive, but she's also known for being fucking Lenny Kravitz's wife and mother of Zoe Kravitz. But she kind of took a break after being in the immediate spotlight for all those years. But she jumped back into acting here and there. She did Enemy of the State, the Tony Scott movie with Will Smith. She did High Fidelity, which is interesting because the High Fidelity show has Zoe Kravitz in it. She did this movie called Road to Paloma, which was one of the WWE pictures (laughs) that fucking my man. Jason Momoa. That's it. My man. My man. My man. Fucking Jason Momoa and her are both in. And I guess that's where, Is that they, where met, they maybe met. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe that's like a movie that they just made after they were together. And then, of course, Mickey Rourke, which, like we mentioned, it's wild going back to this era where Mickey Rourke was one of the fucking dudes. We really only know Mickey Rourke from his later career, but to give you an idea, his first fucking movie is a Steven Spielberg movie. Granted, it's 1941, which is like one of (laughs) Steven Spielberg's most notorious flops that a lot of people hate, which, hot take, I fucking find that movie to be hilarious. It's problematic and so fucking messy, but I kind of love that movie. He's in Fade to Black, which I think we will probably discuss eventually. Chimino's Heaven's Gate, Body Heat, Diner, Rumblefish, The Pope of Greenwich Village, Nine and a Half Weeks, Barfly, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, White Sands, which was an interesting, again, kind of neo-noir that I stumbled across that I'm going to try to find and watch because it sounded interesting. He's in The Rainmaker. He's worked with Coppola a lot, weirdly enough. Buffalo 66, Animal Factory, Get Carter, Spun, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Man on Fire, Sin City, Domino, The Wrestler, Kill Shot, Iron Man 2, The Expendables, Immortals. And then from there, he's basically just fallen off into Redbox obscurity. Yeah, even though he had a career resurgence, yeah. he just went into the Redbox hell after <laughs> so many years. I hate to discuss stuff like this, but man, he was a fucking good looking guy back in the day. He really was. And it's really kind of fucking sad to see him now because he looks rough. He looks really rough. He's just had way too much plastic surgery and then plastic surgery to fix that plastic surgery. I joked about him becoming Tom Waits, but like not really like how Tom Waits looks, but more like how Tom Waits sounds. And he's basically a walking Tom Waits song. He looks (laughs) like Tom Waits probably feels like (laughs) that's the thing. He, he is a Tom Waits song come to life. And lastly, I guess, let me like rope back around to Alan Parker since we didn't talk about him earlier. His filmography is very interesting. And again, this is the one movie that doesn't seem to fit. 
But his filmography is also so fucking varied that it's just, it's wild. And, uh, you know, I've seen some of these movies, but actually I've seen most of them. The one that caught me was he was the guy who did the live action and animated The Wall for Pink Floyd. Yeah. So he does Bugsy Malone, which is this weird gangster musical starring all children. This is one of Jodie Foster's first movies, which weirdly enough, she literally is playing a prostitute in that movie and in taxi driver in the same fucking year like that's some weird shit but yeah it's like a weird kids gangster musical where the kids yeah. are like still shooting each other with tommy guns but it all shoots cream pies and eggs and shit that's weird he does yeah. midnight express which is one of oliver stone's first scripts he did fucking fame pink floyd's the wall like you said he did mississippi burning the commitments the road to wellville which that movie i saw just a couple of years ago it's one of these weird like people go to this resort back in the oldie day that's run by kind of this kellogg type guy who's like oh yeah the way to healthy living is to not masturbate ever and eat lots of cornflakes lots <laughs> of exercising shoving cornflakes down your gullet and not having sex he does Evita, and then he does like fucking Angela's Ashes and The Life of David Gale, which are both dark as fuck, depressing movies, right? So yeah, he's got kind of a wild filmography, ultimately, and Angel Heart is like one of those weird elements. I remember when I saw that he did uh, Angela's Ashes, just that fucking picture of the boy on the poster yeah. dug up a memory I didn't remember having, because I remember seeing that all over like Blockbuster. Yeah, seeing that box in Blockbuster. And the book. But then also seeing the book growing up, yeah. Yeah. Which Heather and I talked about that. She read that book in school, too. Yeah, because, like, they changed the cover because one of the covers was a boy by, like, a window, and it's, like, a black and white photo. But then I remember them changing the cover of the book when the movie movie was released to the movie poster. Yeah. Yeah. I remember both covers, and, like, just dug up memories I totally forgot I had. Cool. So I think that is... About it, as far as Angel Heart is concerned. Do you have any final thoughts, reflections, anything else? Did you enjoy this movie, I guess? I enjoyed re-watching it. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I enjoyed it. To wrap all the way back around to what I said at the start, it's amazing how much this movie juggles, like as far as themes and subplots. And we're here in Brooklyn, and we're dealing with Lucifer, and now we're in New Orleans, and there's this voodoo angle, there's this religion angle, and there's this racial angle. Now there's a witch, now there's a Satan this most movie is a noir and then it turns into a horror movie it handles all this stuff but again i think where it really shines is because we are following one person throughout the entire thing harry angel and it stays with only harry angel and i i think that's why this movie works so well it was a legitimately not jump scare scary movie but a dreadful like creepy scary movie especially with what happens by the end um i enjoyed it it was a fun take on like noir as well as selling your soul to the devil type of story awesome well that is going to do it for this episode as always you can find us on every podcatcher go there download our episodes follow like subscribe whatever the sayings are now Definitely leave us a review or a rating if you are so inclined, specifically at uh, Apple Podcasts, where that seems to get most traction. And then, yeah, you can find us at Watch If You Dare on social media, Twitter, Facebook specifically. Um, We are working on some other avenues as Twitter seems to be fucking imploding at the moment. And then... As always, big thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for providing the music bumps, the beginnings and ends of all of our episodes. Uh, You can find his stuff 
on Bandcamp at Partygator, at Opossums, Big Clown, all the other acts he has there. Grab some music from him, throw him a couple of bucks. Speaking of music, we have our Spotify playlist as well, which is just spooky tunes, horror-adjacent stuff, horror-themed stuff, just stuff we like in general. That is pinned to the top of our Twitter, so you can find that there and check it out if you are in the mood for some spooky stuff. All right, well, I guess that just gets me to the last thing I need to say, which is the flesh is weak, Sally. Only the soul is immortal, and yours belongs to me. Listen, I ain't up on all this Sally shit. I'm from Brooklyn. (laughs) I got a thing for chickens.